Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, Patreon episode 29. The music of His Dark Materials with a special guest, The Dust Podcast. But also, I am one of your hosts. I'm so oh, wait, excited, shit. Eliana. Your other host wants to tell they you They know who we are. Oh my god, no. Eliana, they know who we are. That's true. It, it's, it's us. us. It's us. It's not about us right now. It's about our friends Matt and Holly from the Dust Podcast. I am thrilled. This is a very exciting day. Most pleasing to my His Dark Materials podcasting career. Thank you so much. How the hell are you two? I will say first, and then I will turn over to Holly, but I feel like the uh, kitchen boy has finally been invited to the scholar's table. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, this is Matt, for those of you who have not heard my voice before. Holly, how about you? How are you feeling? I am feeling unqualified to be here. You're the music guy, but I am very, very happy to be here. Been longtime fans of you two, so this is really exciting. When worlds collide, thank you again for coming. I'm so excited. You two are so silly. You're cracking me up because Matt is as much a scholar as any over here with all of his musical claim to fame. all of the I'm excited for all the takes on music. And then Holly and I are going to be shitposting in the margins during this episode. And Eliana and Holly, I feel like, will be kindred souls shitposting in the margins, which is what this is all about. And I do have to say, you're saying you're sitting at the scholar's table, but I want to remind folks at home that this is the podcast with the take that Joppery was edging for many years, and that's why he was able to bring down the zeppelins in the sky. I mean, sky. it's true. I read, I watched <laughs> an anime meme, and it said that you become a wizard if you're a virgin until you're thirty, and that's what happened. Joppery, Will was immaculate. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, <laughs> conception-wise, <laughs> yeah, it's a religious it is. joke. Friends in the holiday Happy season. Holidays. If you don't get that one. <laughs> Happy holidays from your podcast to ours. Uh, This is crazy. The season's done. The series, sorry. The series is done. Uh, Us us Americans gotta recall that it's a series, not a season. And I know that you two have been slammed putting out not just first looks at episodes, but second looks, you crazy people. What is up with that? You're like going in depth. Every scene, every moment. Let us know what you've been up to. What's on the docket for next year for 2021? Holly, you got that, plans for... Do, are, is, are you even staying with the podcast? I, I mean... As long as we quit the three words, then I will stay. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> or Zing. what's worse. Actually, let's quit what's worse. That one's worse. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we've had a lot of fun doing two episodes a week. It's just the, the sheer amount of feedback that we get, and especially with the delay between the the UK yeah. airing and the and the US airing, it almost feels like it's doing a disservice to the American audience if we don't put a second episode out. Plus, mm-hmm. you know, being the music geek that I am, there's always more to talk about for each episode. So, yeah, wow, that delay has been killer, hasn't it? It's not a great choice <laughs> for me personally gonna say yeah it sucked (laughs) (laughs) unfun it was an unfun wait one day behind last season last series and now like two two whole episodes behind every week it's sad it's it's tough to be an american 
It's so hard. It's <laughs> actually in some ways real hard. Yeah. Uh, I know we deserve it, but I mean, and you two understand with Game of Thrones, obviously. We've been around from the Thrones days. All of us have been covering them Thrones for a bit. And I know that the UK got those like a day later. And some people are trying to hold that against us. Be like, well, we got Game of Thrones a day later. And I'm like, mm. I don't know. I don't know if that's going to make the cut for this argument for a good book-to-show adaptation. Mm. You know, the funny thing about this pairing up between HBO and BBC is Mm -hmm. it works out best for both companies either way. BBC can put it Mm -hmm. where they want. We're lucky that we're not in one of those situations where BBC puts it out in October and then we don't get it until March. Because sure. that that yeah. gate has been swung that way uh, sometimes with some franchises uh, going sure. the other way. So just because uh, we Americans like to hold on to our rights to stuff longer, <laughs> the, the British are much more generous than we are. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm interested to see if there's ever any, I don't know, just public follow-up on what happened. You know, what what were the contract deals behind the scenes? Because as we know, especially from some famed movies like The Golden Compass. Things happen behind the scenes, things that we silly humans without our demons in this world do not get to be privy of. It's interesting because I was looking at some of the viewership numbers and ratings for uh, both of the seasons between like the UK and the US. And I don't know if this like affected the decision, but I don't know how many people watch i mean probably not a lot of people watch it on hbo live and i don't know if the ratings are based Mm -hmm. on that or not but it's like in the uk what it was like in the six millions or something right for some of the episodes and like half a million in the u.s and i mean this this book series was also i think much more popular perhaps in the uk than it was necessarily in the u.s so it seems like quite a few of us you know read it anyway um and it was on some school reading lists interestingly like, it was for me, which is how I came to it. It was like a suggestion. They're like, I don't know, pick one of these books. And it's like, that's a cool sounding book. <laughs> I actually didn't know anything about the Philip Pullman series until Holly suggested it to me. And I found out that they were actually making it into a television series. And then I went back and I watched the movie, the Golden Compass movie. Wasn't all that impressed, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Chloe uh, was like the only person impressed by that movie. <laughs> I've watched it too many times, and it wasn't great, but it wasn't the... I think it's very obvious there was some shenanigans happening, some shenanigans afoot, so to speak, you know? I think that was very obvious, even as like a... I don't know, it was what, 2007 it came out? So even as a... Oh my god, I'm not gonna age... I'm not gonna say what my age is. Let's just say that even then... Even as a youngster, I was like, all right, interesting. I think I got it for Christmas that year. It was like a $5 Walmart bin pick. (laughs) Oh, that hurts to say. Yeah, but even then I was like, hmm, cool series, but I just never came back to it. And then Eliana, of course, uh, was the Holly in this scenario and put them in front of me. And then I read all of them, everything I could get my hands on faster faster and i consumed them and uh now she still hasn't finished that one book that we won't even talk about <laughs> yep i finished it on the way back from her house <laughs> i thought that was the other book oh maybe that was la belle sauvage i finished it thinking of you does that count i saw the movie first actually um before the books and i was a young adult and i was 
inebriated with my friend when we saw the movie. And we were just blown away by the idea of having demons in the form of animals. We loved it. Um, So then after that, I discovered there was books. And then, like Chloe, consumed all of them fast as I possibly could. Ate them up. For like the seventh time now, right? It's been a few reads, yeah. Damn. Well, you know, with all that, how how do you guys feel? You know, you've been talking about it, obviously, on the cast, but... I think you still haven't put out, right, your thoughts on the latest series slash season, depending on what side of the pond you're on, um, because I don't think you've put that episode out yet. And what what do you think? I think we both like it better than season one, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just great, great. I say a lot, every episode this season, everything new they added was fantastic. Maybe a little heavy on some Magisterium scenes for me earlier on in this particular series, but overall, I thought it was great that Lee and Mrs. Coulter scene will live in my heart forever. And I really like what they did in the last episode, too, with the changes between Will and his dad. I thought it was very well done. Yeah, I never have a problem with changes in adaptation so much. I, I will go back and in our book reader sections and cite, well, this is what happened in the books as opposed to what happened in the show. But I believe that Jack Thorne and Jane Tranter have really carried the spirit of this series, of what I've read. And I've only read the trilogy. I have not read La Belle Sauvage or Secret Commonwealth. But the original trilogy, I feel like the spirit of those books just literally bleed through the television screen. And so any adaptation changes that they make have not bothered me in the least. I'm always pleasantly surprised by them. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, you too are in like a similar state as me. I mean, like I've made some of my way through the Secret Commonwealth, but you know, it's gonna just keep being a secret to you and me, I guess. <laughs> we have a Commonwealth oh, I hope of secrets. Not for long. Mm, we do. <laughs> oh, Matt Holly. This is great. I'm so freaking excited. This is going to be a stupid. We're stupid. I can't wait. This is going to be silly and I love it. Where can we find you on the internet? Tell everyone at home where they can log on on the World Wide Web and find your episodes. Well, I think you can find the Dust Podcast probably just about wherever you get your podcast episodes regularly. Um, Our feed and all of our back episodes can be found at mattsaudioblog.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. Uh, and if you have trouble finding us that way, then just hit us up on Twitter at The Dust Podcast, and we'll be happy to direct you in a direction that works for you and your device. Wonderful. You know, to start us all off, I've, I've already asked you all your thoughts on the season i did have some like overall other questions right more pointedly to the topic of our discussion for both of you for holly and double m as he likes to try and get us to call him on (laughs) on the cast um i'm hoping you have some doubles for us this episode i'm oh god (laughs) holly will holly will kill me if i do that to your guys' podcast she really will no (laughs) (laughs) um i i won't I mean, maybe, who knows, but, you know, I, I just want to get a sense, you know, you were saying that you like season two already more than you liked season one, but I'm kind of curious how you both feel like that the soundtrack has evolved from season one to season two, right? Are, are, are there any changes that you've seen in the tone overall, like, or the composition that, in the soundtrack between the seasons? 
I think the tone, I guess, for the first season is a lot lighter and there's a lot more kind of fun things happening versus the season two soundtrack where it's it's scary and sad. Those are my very basic thoughts. Like I said, I'm not qualified to be here. <laughs> totally qualified to be here because that's all the, the purpose of the music is, is to heighten our emotions of what we're seeing on screen. So I, I think that that's a good assessment there, Holly. For me... There hasn't been much of a change in terms of the timbres that Mr. Balf used, but he is uh, kind of a stickler for what he feels like his sound is. You'll hear very similar orchestrations in his other soundtracks, like for Genius, like for Mission Impossible, like for The Crown Season 2. He was part of that. And that's just kind of... Lawrence sound where he comes from he's originally uh as he grew up was very much a drummer he's a multi-instrumentalist now of course but you'll find a lot of stylistically like the cross rhythm things uh where the 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 lines kind of overlap each other a great deal and what i find most interesting about that is the way that he has used those types of things in both seasons or both series, this series a lot more than in series one. He's like, look, I'm a rhythmologist. I'm going to I'm going to show you how to use some rhythms, which I've loved for this particular soundtrack. Yeah, he's honestly a super popular composer, right? Like he's kind of got his paws in everything. Uh, if you go to his Spotify page, you're not just seeing his dark materials. You're going to see a lot of stuff that you didn't even realize Lorne was doing. I mean, I think he's he's doing the Black Widow soundtrack. Oh, is he? Is. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be... That's that's a reason I may be going to see Black uh, Widow after one of all, the reasons. is all I'm going to say. <laughs> that is, that's one of the reasons why I've been waiting for a year for the darn thing to come out, it feels like. so. I know. I guess time's moving more slowly here, as we're seeing, and I'm sure Will and Lyra could understand that whole time moving differently thing. So glad we're on board with it. I thought it was interesting that you were saying that uh, Balf uh, was originally a drummer. He was talking about how his collaboration with, he, like this season, right? He brought on the drummer from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Chad Smith. And it, he actually used him in the season one soundtrack, too. Uh, that was that was kind of the thing that finalized his feelings about the mrs coulter theme uh right. you know he felt like he'd really hit it right by the time that chad came on board and, and worked on that and on his twitter he posted video after video of chad recording that he's just so proud because i think chad is one of his heroes as a drummer and uh so that had to be great fun for him i asked him in our interview last year if uh you know what it was like to play to hear his music played by world-class musicians, which is nothing new to him, of course, because he's been doing soundtracks for everything from video games to movies for a long time now, and he's been in Hans Zimmer's composer group forever, uh, the last 10, 15 years. So this is nothing new to him, but there are moments like Chad Smith playing the drums for him that just makes... Uh, his day which is really cool that's awesome that's so cool that that's really fun to hear 
And, you know, we were talking a little bit about the soundtrack overall, but zooming in on, like, some of, you know, what, what Chloe and I like to talk about a lot are um, these really deep character moments, right? And I'm just kind of curious how you found that maybe some certain characters, maybe their themes evolved, or, like, what are some of your favorite ways? I, I know you talk about this a bit on your cast and some of the ways that you've seen things change, but what are some of your favorite ways you've seen those themes evolve from season one to season two? The most obvious one, the most overt one, is probably for me the treatment of Lee Scoresby's theme. Most of the time in series one, it was done with the same kind of instrumentation. It was a lot more guitar heavy in series one, which is fine. It represents the kind of that Western element that goes along with Lee. But to hear that theme throughout the course of this season, and especially given the result of the end of this series for fans who fear what they fear in terms of, of losing Lee, but to hear the bigger orchestrations, to hear his melody being played, not just with this piano tiny kind of thing, or even with a theremin, but to hear it played with a French horn, to hear it played with a trombone, to hear the strings being used in the way that they are to harmonize it uh, is something that we really didn't get really much of it all we didn't get much of that at all in series one so that's was a way that made lee's whole storyline this particular series even more cinematic than maybe we're used to yeah i think we have a lot to talk about about lee's themes today i know that's probably our biggest uh everyone's got some stuff to say there and before we get into all of that, I'm so excited to hear about that. And I do want to know, I know you have a bunch of ground rules, Matt, for what you analyze a series with when you and Holly discuss the music of His Dark Materials over on the dust and kind of where it takes you. So let us know what kind of the base foundational notes you have on music are when it comes to His Dark Materials. Sure. The thing that I like to do, because I'm a pretty simple person, is I like to bring everything down to the lowest common denominator so that I can talk about it. So one thing that we have to understand is we're going to be rattling off a lot of titles in this particular episode. <laughs> the one thing that you have to keep in mind is that there are cue titles, which are specifically things that you'll find in soundtracks that usually just point to a scene. They're only titled that because of how the scene starts or the music that is accompanying a certain scene. That is not necessarily a theme. A theme is a piece of music that you might hear over several of these cue titles, just orchestrated in a different way or perhaps harmonized differently. A perfect example of this is that if you have, for instance, in the season two of official television soundtrack, there's a cut called The Female Scholar, and that, that's a cue title. But it starts with Mary's theme, the theme that was created for the character Mary. And then it totally shifts gears and it becomes the theme for the shaman is played, John Perry's theme. So when we say the female scholar, we'll probably be referencing either the first half or the second half simply by the cue title to cut, but realize that there are different themes being played in all of these different cuts because that's what narratively music does for television. It helps you inform whose point of view this is or who we're looking at or those types of things. And so 
kind of as a shorthand, most composers just say, okay, this is where Mary taps the computer. And so the, the, the Q title becomes Taps the Computer, which may not necessarily have anything to do with the music that's being played. Another thing that I, I'd like to point out for sure is that not all of the cues that you hear on an official soundtrack actually make it into an episode. Sometimes things are either faded back to the point where you can't hear it or even cut off. And at the same time, sometimes there's music that ends up in an episode that does not make it into a soundtrack. In fact, just less than a month ago, Mr. Balf was asking Twitter uh, to help him make a decision on what their favorite cues from the series was so that he could help them get compiled into the soundtrack, which I love. That he is so fan-friendly, he'll answer any tweet that you send at him. He's very cool with that, and he actually asked for input for that, and I'm sure that people's input actually helped him evaluate what he wanted to have put on the soundtrack by Silver Screen Records. And... At the same time, sometimes you might have something from one scene that's 15 seconds long and another scene that's 30 seconds long. And those things may be put together by music editors, even though they may be in totally different episodes. So don't think that when we're talking about a particular title cut, if it re part of it relates to one episode of television, the other part of it might not even be the same episode, or let alone the corresponding scene. Oftentimes, they try to put them together as much as they can, but sometimes other considerations like, are these two pieces in, this, are in the same key, or are they the same tempo, also come into play. And that's not something that has happened a whole lot until maybe the last 15 years or so, but cut length used to be sometimes you'd listen to a, an old official soundtrack and, and some cuts would be only 30 seconds long. Now they try to make them at least worth the money to buy a single MP3 for, and that's why they're cut together that way now. There's something I really noticed. I uh, spent a lot of time driving this week, so I used that time wisely and had both Series 1 and Season 2's soundtracks playing on repeat got through them a handful of times, but it was very obvious which songs were used before the intro when you get driving, when you can literally physically recall watching the episode and going, ah, right, that was the, the open before the intro music played, aha, and that struck me while driving, I could hear sure. it, and then I just started jamming every time, I'll do, 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 burr, burr, burr. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you guys know the whole thing. But yeah, that, that was pretty obvious. And it, it does seem that there are a couple things, like you said, that had some extension added to it or things that had to be trimmed down that were kind of, uh, or blended mm -hmm. in, right? Series 1, it feels like a lot of the music from Series 1 didn't have, uh, it's not that the, the transitions weren't seamless, but some of the transitions were a little stiffer than I think Series 2 was blended really seamlessly musically. I think that uh, it found its flow a lot more than Season 1, and not in a bad way, just Series 2 evolved. It evolved to kind of incorporate all of these sounds together and all of these characters together, which is exactly where Mr. Belf, I'm sure, is heading. Right, and there's such an infusion of new themes for this particular series. I mean, seven or eight new themes. 
And we typically look for what those themes sound like in his anthology series, which he'll actually create a lot of music. And this is what ends up in his anthologies, volume one and two. He'll create music to send to the showrunners, to send to Jack and Jane and say, this is what I picture for the Spectres or this is what I picture for, you know, the Shaman or whatever. And then they'll say, yeah, I like that. No, I don't really like that. And, and decisions are made from there. And then when it goes to actually scoring, he has a kind of a, a template with which to work is, okay, I'm going to take this music from here and this music from here. This music's for the knife. This music's for Lee. And he'll know how to combine them together. And ultimately, Mr. Balfe is very adamant about this. Ultimately, all of that stuff in terms of what gets in and what doesn't get in is up to the director, which makes perfect sense because they're setting the overall tone of everything. Very, very interesting. And these are good ground rules and, and a great primer as we head into the episode and talk a little bit more about our favorite musical moments of, you know, the whole entire series. And this time when I'm saying series, I'm saying it the way that Americans mean it. The whole show thus far, both seasons. So, so you know, start off. Um, doesn't have to be in any order. What are some of your top musical moments? Yeah, let's start off talking about Lee Scoresby. I know we have a lot to talk about when it comes to Lee, our dashing spaghetti western hero who uh, Lin-Manuel cuts a very nice, a little bit younger once upon a time in the North, Lee Scoresby. And the themes for Lee are prominent. You'll know them when you hear them. We'll talk more about some of their possible origins as we tear in. But specifically, I think we're talking about what Lee's choice, the tales of Lee Scoresby, gateway to the North today. Yeah, Lee's Choice was absolutely one of my favorites. And of course, it didn't appear until the seventh episode. It's It actually covers a couple of scenes. Uh, it's used in two different scenes. Uh, the first half is used in the scene where John Perry leaves him. And he, well, he sends John Perry away. And the second half is used as he's calling to Serafina Peklo using the cloud pine. And there's a very emotional type of harmonization that is used with that. And it's also uh, what I like to think of as true Americana, which is the, the Copeland kind of sound. Aaron Copeland was a composer who is often associated with the quote unquote American sound. And if, as we all know, Texas in Lyra's world is essentially all of the United States. Uh, so it seems fitting that as a kind of a goodbye to Lee, that this bag would be used by Balf. The parallel, what we call parallel fourths, are very prominent. That's a Copeland harmonizing technique, which makes you feel not just tense, but also sad. And yeah. if I had to pick one version of Lee's theme... Uh, throughout either of the two series so far, uh, this would definitely be my favorite. Holly, I know that The Tales of Lee Scoresby is a favorite of yours from the series. Yeah, it's fun talking after Matt when he goes into depth and I'm just going to be like, I like the way it sounds. And when I listen to the soundtrack, I want to just listen to this one on repeat. Um, <laughs> no, I really do like... <laughs> uh, I like the... I just like the Western style piano Um and not to talk about other composers from shows we like, but it just kind of reminds me of uh, Romain Jouadi from Westworld. I really like his use of the same um, instrument 
in his score. Uh, but with this one, it does seem like not like American Western. It does feel otherworldly Western. So I really believe it's not of this world, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah. Holly, one of the things that I love about uh, you bringing that up is when we first meet Lee Scoresby, he's coming to Trollison basically to start trouble. Yep. He's coming in as the cowboy who walks into the saloon and, and, and is ready to challenge the nearest gunslinger, more or less, because he's looking for York. And he's trying to figure out what the heck's happened to his friend. And it really sets up the fact that this theme, literally in everything that we've seen in terms of old Western movies, uh, has that kind of vibe. Just like you mentioned, even Ramin with his Westworld soundtrack. But the other thing that I really like is the fact that he did evolve it all throughout series two uh, to a point where it became bigger. And just like he is crossing in different worlds, so the orchestration is enlarging his universe as well. I'm going to circle back to that exact point on a different track I'm going to talk about later because that's how I feel about some of some of my choices oh, wow. here. Interesting. Oh, teaser, teaser. Ooh. Foreshadowing? Um, no. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I also had, like, Tales of Lee Scorsese there, because a, a friend of ours, Fred, emailed the podcast, and I think we said this on one of our earlier episodes, and was comparing Lee Scoresby's, um, you know, the, the way that the music goes, and how it has that Western genre vibe comes back to his theme referencing Enrico Morricone's composition, The Ecstasy of Gold, from the Western, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and... Um, he sent us links to those here, and we can link Morricone's The Ecstasy of Gold, and you can all check out Lauren Balfe's thing on, I don't know, Spotify or Apple Music or wherever people access music nowadays title. I don't know if it's on there or not. But yeah, I thought that was a really, really great pickup that Fred found. Yeah, there, there are definitely some similar motives, Eliana. It's kind of an inverted one. But like the Lee Scoresby theme starts like this. Whereas Murakani starts like this. Same notes, just to going in a different direction. And uh, there's also that little motif in Murakani's like that. And with, with Lee, it's... Very, very similar. So I did put a question in to Mr. Balf uh, when we start first started to talking about this, uh, this email, because him and I messaged back and forth every once in a while, and he had not responded, unfortunately. There are things that could point to the fact that it might be coincidence just because after Berg's 12-tone row, there's no way to create anything actually original, but it does seem way too similar to me, to not think that it was something that he might have thought about or maybe even had watched some of that movie that that's from. On top of that, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, Mr. Balf for a long time was part of Hans Zimmer's composer group. And because of that, if you read interviews with Mr. Zimmer, Morikani is one of his 
absolute favorite composers and biggest influences. So I can only imagine that as Balf and Gregson Williams and, and <laughs> Zimmer are sitting around, Zimmer is probably playing in Cito all the time. So it might have come out of him just because, oh, that's the Western sound. So I think Fred's on to something. It could be just coincidence, but I think he's on to something. Yeah. I uh, I think Fred is 900% onto something, for sure. It's definitely a reference. I mean, this is... So, we talked about the origins of Lee Scoresby's name, and Lee Van Cleef is actually a Western character who he's named for, one person he's named for. Uh, he's named for another explorer by the last name of Scoresby. We'll talk about some other time, but no music's original, for sure. Nothing's original. Movies are terrible. Everything's terrible, but <laughs> I think of that, uh, what was it, Simpsons? Yes, movies are terrible line. My fiance <laughs> says that all the time, and we laugh about that whenever we talk about pretty much any media, because it's all awful. But Morricone started composing for Westerns in the 60s. You know that sound that bow, 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 with the tumbleweed going by? That's Morricone. You know, like, when you think... Boom. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that is what we're hearing here, right? Like, that is straight up Western, whether it's exactly from Ecstasy of Gold, which, let me just say, Clint Eastwood is looking mighty Western fine in, <laughs> if you ever want a nice Saturday watch. You know, I didn't get it when I was a kid. My dad watched a lot of Clint Eastwood, and then he also watched Steven Seagal. So I don't know. They don't really even out, in my opinion. But my dad watched a ton of Clint Eastwood when I was a kid, and I didn't get it. But now as an adult, I'm like, I get it, Dad. I get it, Pops. Uh, so yeah, that tumbleweed going by, you know, that's what you hear. You think that's Morricone. And he's composed so much. He's composed Good, Bad, The Ugly, Once Upon a Time in the West, which notable as holly might appreciate right because once upon a time in the north with lee uh you have a huge mishmash of movies he's been in like dueo ne texas bullets don't argue pistol for ringo seven guns for mcgregor's julio Petroni's death rides a horse bullet for the general you name it he's done music for it but he was also this is so crazy to me. When I learned this, I, I thought this was wild. Morricone was an influence for Muse, uh, City of Delusion, Hoodoo, and Knights of Sidonia, they have said, are influenced by Morricone. Is that not insane to you? Knights of Sidonia is influenced by Spaghetti Westerns, and it makes total sense when I think about it. I want to play Guitar Hero now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm like... <laughs> I thought that was just an anime. I'm not really into Muse. <laughs> we'll work on it, Eliana. We'll work on I've it. I've tried. I've tried, but it, there's just something about the vocalist's voice that I like can't. Yeah. Uh, it was a high school thing for me. I love in yeah. high school. It was just they were they were the band. But I don't know. Morricone is a big deal, right? Metallica uses "Ecstasy of Gold" as an intro to their concerts, and the Mars Volta uses what do they use? They use fistful of dollars gnarls barkley's crazy that song that's influenced because of morricone he's literally said that's what inspired him to write it excellent that is cool the other thing that you might want to consider if you're looking for that kind of western sound and you can go back even a little further of course is to copeland and you you hear a lot of copeland influences in what balf did especially in this season not just with Lee's theme, but also with a couple of renditions of John Perry's theme. But if you mm -hmm. think back to that kind of sound like Billy the Kid, 
Appalachian Spring, all of that kind of sound wasn't stolen by Morricone at all. Uh, Morricone was very much using Italian music and Italian musicians to create his scores, which I found fantastic, uh, especially since we consider them spaghetti westerns now. But the the whole idea of that kind of sound has been around for quite a while. And many musicians have gone to those two kinds of influences to create that sound. But I, I'm in total agreement with you here, Eliana. I feel like that the some of these motifs that Balfe put in Lee's theme especially have uh, a direct correlation to Ecstasy of Gold. So... Thank you to our friend Fred for his insight there. And yeah, you know, we've been talking a lot about Lee's theme and the way that the instruments have changed and and how it's um, evolved. And I'm just wondering, you know, is there anything that you might anticipate for some ways that it could change uh, to really play up some of the scenes that we'll see him again, you know, as... sure. Book readers know we are going to see... We probably should have put a spoiler thing at top of this episode. Well, we kind of did. Um, you know, we're going to see Lee again in season three in the underworld. You know, what What might that sound like? I think it will depend on the perspective. If this is something that's very emotional for Lyra or for Will or whoever, I don't know that you'll hear that much different. If Mr. Balf wants to try and use timbral changes, he could go back to the original kind of theremin sound that he was using. Do you think maybe it could be blended with the shaman a little bit more as far as melodic themes? Because we'll probably see both of them in similar moments and it'll probably harken back to here where both of them have such horrid ends in so such sudden ends, yeah. right? In the same handful of scenes and moments. Well, And those two themes are already, uh, if you look at the, the notes contained within those themes, they are linked already. Uh, if you just think about the motive of, of, Lee, just that little lick that's always in Lee's guitar, that same thing is used in John Perry's theme. They both have this melody part of it. So all of those things are already interconnected a great deal. Um, So you could definitely... Maybe have Lee Scoresby's harmony with John Perry's melody. The interesting mm. thing about Balfe is that he always composed things with two layers so that the harmony can stand by itself or so that the melody can stand by itself. And so that offers a lot of choices of versatility. And what he does with that timbrely then adds a whole third layer. So it's, it's exciting to think about. It allows the focus to change pretty well right like it allows the camera it allows the scene and earlier we talked about how uh, how music you know it tells you more than just tone right it tells you uh what characters in charge of the scene it tells you pretty much everything about the scene if you take away the dialogue you can still understand what's going on mostly from whether it's just the physical whether it's just the the tone etc yeah agreed yeah you know, I think we get a little bit of a sneak peek in terms of um, your both reactions, right, to episode seven. And how did you all feel? How did you all feel um, about the way that they executed that uh, last, those last moments of Lee? I mean, I cried on our podcast just talking about it, if that tells you anything. <laughs> Same. <laughs> 
Uh, Sam, you cried during recording your podcast about it. I don't think it's very fair to ask that of oh, a okay. First of all. <laughs> Second of all, yes, I did. Bitch, what of it? It's my podcast. I'll cry if I want to. <laughs> Fuck yeah, I cried. I was so sad. I cried. Eliana, did you hear me uh, cry a little bit? Almost cry. Choke back Almost tears. Cry. I mean, you called me like right after the episode finished. I was very emotional. I did. I straight up like opened my phone, got on Discord, called this bitch, and I was like, we have to talk about it. She finished like half an hour before I did. I cried a little bit in the episode where I held back tears about Will and his dad, actually. Same. Same. I didn't really... That was sad. It, it, that part was sad, but Lee got me the most. Yeah, no, uh-huh. Lee hurt. Lee hurt. <sighs> the music in the episode during Lee's choice, haha, no pun intended. Um, actually, no, the pun was absolutely intended. I don't know why I'm lying to you. So the music there in Lee's choice, I caught something interesting. And like I said, shit posting in the margins. <laughs> As you know, I am a very avid shipper, which is the uh, the fandom term for when you relationship with someone or when you want someone to be together very badly with all of your little broken, blackened, bruised soul and heart. And there's something between You Loved a Witch from Series 1, Episode 4 and Lee's choice throughout its couple of uses in the finale that we mentioned earlier. In Season 1, Episode 4, Armor, you loved a witch plays when Farder Quorum tells Lyra about his past, right? And tells her how he loved a witch before. The scene then changes and we get Lee Scoresby's first entrance into a bar to cause trouble, as Matt said earlier. Uh, the first 15, 30, 45 seconds of You Loved a Witch is those sad, swelling, emotional, heavy strings, right? Let's fast forward to Lee's choice. Starts out Lee's theme, which then gets bastardized into these sad, heavy, swelling, emotional strings by the mid-end of the song. It's going pretty hard, right? Uh, And at the end of that song, as you mentioned, the second time we hear Lee's choice, the last time, I guess I could say, uh, Serafina Pekula is receiving Lee's call. You know why? Because you loved a witch. I'm just saying, Lauren Balfe ships it too. Okay, I'm just saying, these literally line up. This is a parallel from series one to series two. I'm I'm just saying, am I wrong? Have you considered that the intermixing no. of Lee's theme with nope. John Perry's theme could also Get out. mean Eliana, that Eliana, do not ruin this for me. Do not do this for me. I like shipping that, Eliana. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my thing right there. I'm, I'm all for that. Well, I think there's that was tension. the last smart thing I have. So thanks. <laughs> Here I am ruining Chloe's I, life, bringing in other what? people to ruin I, Chloe's life. I with think me. there's reason to ship the two of them. I absolutely think there's reason to ship Serafina and and Lee. Uh, she didn't give anybody else no cloud pine. I'm just saying, and as of series two, it's a part of her, right? And and there's that a uh, scene of like. A, she kisses him on the forehead, but then Ruda Gernitas, right, on her Twitter, she has like a, she shared a picture of herself kissing a photo of Lin-Manuel yeah, I saw as that. Lee or something. <laughs> it's canon, that's all I'm saying, It was pretty everyone. funny. All jokes aside, I thought that was an interesting parallel that like the first, like we get obviously Lee's entrance a little earlier in a hot air balloon singing another jam, Eliana and I know a little well, but... 
uh, Lee ends his plot with the witch calling for the witch and Serafina like realizes what's going on to that end of his theme. And that's actually how we hear Lee's theme in the beginning. I find that interesting. Good parallels. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on from our cowboys and our shamans, let's talk a little bit about another one of our top musical moments, which comes in The Female Scholar. I guess I'm kind of slipping in a, a little bit of a write-in vote here underneath this title, because we can can consider that Mrs. Coulter always thought of herself as a scholar, even though she wasn't rewarded as such. Uh, but for me, uh, one of the most poignant versions of the Coulter theme this particular season was right at the beginning of the episode, the scholar where she was watching everybody on the outside. She was brand new in this world. She was in that car and she was watching everybody. And as I mentioned before, Mr. Balf does things where he can separate harmony from melody. He, he always writes in two layers. So you have the typical Mrs. Coulter harmony going on which has just this descending bass line. Normally you would hear her melody be like this. But in that particular case, one of the things that I loved is we were seeing how she was so intrigued by it all, how she was happy to be seeing this different place. In psychoacoustics, we use what we call major chords to create feelings of happiness or lightness. And we use minor to create sadness or we use it to create scariness. And he put a whole different melody on top of those chords at that beginning moment by going like this. The chords were telling you it was Mrs. Coulter, but the melody was telling you she was happy to be there, which I, I thought was just fascinating because we'd never heard Mrs. Coulter's theme done in that way. I thought that was a very poignant moment for the character and for our perspective of her, you know, as viewers. Interesting. Yeah, it's amazing how much dissonance there was brought to both of those characters, right? Uh, both of their notes seem to clash, just like both of their characters would have clashed had Coulter not been putting on that happy Mrs. Scholar face, so to say. And this is one of those show-invented scenes we kind of mentioned earlier at the top of the episode. And I know, Holly, that you really enjoyed this episode among a couple of the other invented meetings. So what, what did you think about this meeting with Coulter and with Mary? I really liked it. I wish it would have happened in the book. <laughs> That's that's how I felt. That's right. how I felt about a lot of these added scenes. I'm like, these are, this is my headcanon now. Like this actually happens. Yeah, it's it was thrilling to watch Mrs. Coulter get to see what she's missed out on and all the opportunities she doesn't have. Um, I could say that because she's bad, right? Um, so I can not feel. I can, yeah. yeah, I can, I can say, hey, yeah, you suck. You don't deserve any of this. Uh, you couldn't have it in your world anyway. Suck it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I really did enjoy that scene a lot. Yeah, it was one of I think the highlights of invented scenes, and I think, um, as you said, you really like the way that they've been adapting 
Mary Malone throughout the series. So I think that's been really interesting. And yeah, that dissonance that you were talking about is interesting that it, it might be like happy because it feels like Mrs. Coulter's acting right there isn't quite joy. It's more no. like a... Uh, I was actually, for my thing, I was actually referring to the very first scene of the episode, uh, which it is this, this scene actually occurs much later. When she's sitting in the car, you mean, and just like watching everybody in Boreal's car? When she's car. sitting in the car watching everybody and yeah, waiting on Boreal's one- coffee. Uh, that one had a sense of wonder to it, which is interesting, um, and posed a very interesting, like, philosophical question of, like, or kind of a prop uh, argument, right? That you know, our world is less spiritual and therefore more corrupt. But I don't know. I don't know if it is or not. I feel like she looked at that world too, and she saw nothing but opportunities, right? Where Boreal yeah. said every moment charles just said oh this world's shit it's bullshit nothing's great about this world exactly and there's even something to it right that that music that uh that clashing noise that you played that right there is her saying i'm happy i have everything i want don't i question mark trailing off and that's what the episode is all about that misnomer of the scholar as we mentioned in our show coverage uh, I think that is really brilliant, just that you open the episode thinking we're going to get all of this Mary Malone content, but it opens with Coulter, and it's about Coulter's journey mm-hmm. seeing this. And in her her parts of the music, is, is more it's busier, right? It's more complicated than Mary's whimsical theme that we'll talk about in a bit. And it still has those soaring strings that kind of indicate adventure, but like you said, Lauren admits that writing her theme was so hard, he rewrote it the most. It was the most challenging. And he mentioned that looking at full storyboards helps him write a theme, right? Like that when he's looking at writing music or themes, he, he's looking for color inspiration and flow of the story and being able to see the big picture at once. And there's this descending bit of the song where it slows down, right, to almost a complete soft lull of rushing strings, and it changes from being so busy, and it starts to get a little, I don't know, it starts from dark, and then it lightens up. And it makes me think a little bit of her entire arc against this song, right? Like, it's busy, it's full of mystery, there's energy, but there's also diligence, and then it slows and crashes toward the middle, and by the end, it has a new direction, it's softer and brighter, and uh, it feels almost like Maurice's art put against it. I I wish I wish I wish that that cut uh, from the opening scene had been included in the in the soundtrack. It was not. Yeah. I think it totally paints Mrs. Coulter in a totally different light. And as for the scene that you brought up, Chloe, earlier about uh, her meeting with Mary Malone, I mean, we don't praise Ruth Wilson enough, right? But we. Emmy, Emmy, here's an Emmy. BAFTA, BAFTA, <laughs> BAFTA, Emmy, BAFTA, yeah, Emmy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, she, that just, not only her acting, but the continuity of seeing the realizing how kind of out of her league that she is with Mary, registering on her face slowly, 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 uh, to the point that by the time later on in the episode when she's sitting with with Boreal, you know, and he asks her to describe Malone, you could just see all of that happening 
again on her face. There's some brilliant continuity throughout that whole scene with Mary in the office that I, I don't think uh, direction and, and acting can ever be given, given enough credit for because it, you know they had to do a ton of shots, uh, different directions, whatever, and it just seems so seamless. Uh, so I love that moment. That's a great time to move into a few songs from Series 2 specifically. Study the Dark Matter, Journey Ahead, Matter of Dust, basically any scene with Mary either communicating with dust or any parts of her journey uh, very heavily include her theme and different bits. I really loved the way that they did those scenes of Mary, um, especially the ones in the cave uh, in general across the season, and wrote in that music. I think that in, I don't remember which episode it was, and uh, I think uh, you, Matt, were talking about how it was a play, some of this music was a play on a song or one of the themes from the previous season and had been adjusted for it but like they really mm. just interweave it with this like beeping instrument or bell is how i'm interpreting it as a unknowledgeable person uh and it feels like both technological but the way that it's like spaced out gives it this really sense of whimsy or of the divine to me and the way that it also goes in well with the sounds that the cave software uh, is making and sort of meshes uh, with that instruments and it's just yeah you're spot on Eliana because using those bell kind of sounds uh, high bell tones the actual waveforms if you look at them on a computer the same way that we do when we edit our voices you know you can tell whether a timbre is more pure or not simply by how smooth it is, whether there's more jagged edges in it or what have you. And bells typically, in most ranges, until you get into the lower ranges, have very smooth, almost sign-like waveforms, which is literal sonic purity, which is a great way to show that they... Uh, that it, this sound is kind of representing the angel's message to them because they are coming from a place of divinity, of superiority. And I love that you threw in the whimsy bit because uh, there is those spaces like the... Also, just the distance when you go, when you jump things by octaves, this creates a huge amount of leaps, what we like to call the melodic shape. And when you have large melodic shapes like that, you think of Mary having to take a literal leap of faith in order to buy into all of this stuff. So I, I think that Mr. Balf put a lot of thought into how he was going to approach Mary's theme in general. Yeah. And I mean, that makes sense because Mary does a lot of thought and thinking. Exactly. You know, the light bells are really prominent and the song is different than, uh, it's similar to like how we can discuss Lee's theme and melody at length the way we did earlier. That's how Mary's is, right? It's so singular. It's so specific. It's different than anyone else's theme in the story. And there were a few things I noticed in this. Uh, it, they, it's not just the divine whimsy, which in a way, it also reminds me of Chinese bells. Uh, they uh. used to be cast out of beaten copper. Most of them since the Bronze Age were cast out of regular metal, but uh, Chinese handbells were often used to communicate with ancestral spirits. Mm. And 
it reminds me a bit of that. And there's also a bit of childlike whimsy, right? That Mary is the keeper of the children through this whole series that it, it, it sounds like innocence. Her theme sounds like innocence. The bells ring like innocence, like children playing in the streets of Shirigatse. Uh, and you even hear during these, for example, in I think Study the Dark Matter, Lyra's theme, right? That overarching, that overture of the Oxford theme and Lyra's theme joins into the bells at one point, which is significant of Lyra joining her plot. When you get to Journey Ahead, you have that similar background melody writing, but it's changed a bit because Lyra has changed Mary's journey. She's changed her theme. You hear these sounds start to kind of soar more. And as you get to Matter of Dust, it sounds like a bigger soaring over sound, right? Like there's all these strings and different things soaring above that are just slightly different from Study the Dark Matter. So it's almost like things are falling into place in all of this understanding. And it's really interesting. I recommend listening to all three of them together. Hmm. Great point. Yeah. Holly, what did you think of uh, Mary's Scenes with the Cave? I know that you read this book at around the same time I did. So obviously, me in 2003 had a really different conception of what the cave would look like. And this probably makes sense for our time. But yeah, I don't. Well, actually, you read it a little after. But But no, it's the same, though. I don't know what I imagine, like a big server box of computers or something silly. (laughs) Um, And then I was just really blown away. I talked about it on our episode of the podcast. So quantum computers that like there's computers that look like that that really exists and i was like oh i was blown away um i had no idea it's good absolutely and i think there's a big journey and i'm kind of curious you know what your thoughts are as well on like you know how did this evolve as she meets the children in chitagatse or like um with her journey i don't remember exactly if it's the same theme i think it changes it changes a little as she's using the it's the same kind of similar music when she's using the ijing so that's why i said communicating with dust earlier but i don't know that it is the same when she's doing it in the world of chitagatse so there are two different instances when we first see Mary in Chittagatze. The one where she's using the I Ching, um, again, this is where Valve divides harmony and melody. So sometimes you don't hear that melody, but you'll hear this. And that was present when she was doing the I Ching almost everywhere. But you don't necessarily hear the... You know, those types of melody parts. And again, Balf can take one idea, divide it up into several parts, and that way he can use it for different situations. I think you do hear the bell parts when she's sitting near the shore and we see the angel. Mm-hmm. I think that you you hear them there. Uh, and again, the bells representing the divinity of the angels uh, as they are protecting her, speaking to her, whatever. Yeah, and that's a great point, bringing in um, the angels, and of course, that's a that is dust. That's communicating with dust as well, and I think we'll come back to that in a bit. But first, we're going to talk about our uh, person who's you know the biggest expert that we have in the series when it comes to communicating with dust, Lyra. Yes, Lyra, <laughs> Lyra. Lyra. <sighs> The best song. Lyra has basically two themes, right? She's got the the prophecy theme. 
And then she's got her more fun theme that we first heard with her and Roger in the very first episode. Um, like that. So those are her two basic themes, and they've both been used a whole lot. Uh, but I particularly, as far as picking a favorite of versions of Lyra's theme, uh, it is that second version, the more fun version, that I found in episode four, was it, uh, of season of series one, called Armor. And you have Lee Scoresby looking in the balloon overhead and he looks down, and he sees the ship and all of a sudden there's Lyra running through the ship and we hear that theme being played. And up until that time, I had kind of just associated this theme with her and Roger more so than just her on her own. But obviously she's going to f- try and find Roger, but Roger's nowhere around and she's having some fun on her own. So, uh, Schoolastic Sanctuary was the name of it on the Anthology Volume 1 album, and it outgrew its namesake in that very scene, uh, because now it became more of Lyra's fun theme. And we've heard that used a whole lot in, in Season 1, like when she was riding on York in the Season 1, Episode 6, but you even heard a whisper of it in the beginning of this series, because she's exploring a new world of Chittagaze, and you hear the this part. But then all of a sudden, the theme for Chittagaze itself, or the specter, kicks in in, in kind of an answer to it. So that's kind of demonstrating that she's going to be exploring it didn't sound nearly as happy as it normally does either uh, because of the different kinds of harmony from the Chittagaze theme being played around it so that was beautiful but for me uh, the version at the beginning of uh, the armor episode is the one that I would definitely list as a favorite so one of my favorites is in season two I think that the ones that you were saying of Lyra, especially one, I think the one with armor that was stuck in my head earlier today, but this is a different one. And in episode two, right, when Lyra's about to go into Will's Oxford, mm-hmm. um, I think this might be one of her themes. It is. It's a theme for her and Will, I believe. Uh-huh. Yes. Beautiful. It's from the season two anthology. If you look up Children of the Prophecy, you'll hear that melody played. But I know where you're going with this and I love it. Yeah, um, oh, I love it. I love that they made new themes for the two of them. So beautiful. They deserve all of the themes together. But, um, sorry, distracted by being <laughs> <That's> sad. So <laughs> sad. <laughs> all the time. <laughs> um, and we're going to only get sadder as the episode goes and start talking about this more in depth. But this part's actually funny. Like, the Children of the Prophecy theme, right? Lyra's like, oh, sick, new door, and just, like, runs through. She's like, yeah, how hard can it be? I've crossed worlds before. And it, there's, like, the theme starts getting really, like, intense. And, like, there's this wonderful swelling of uh, the music as though something amazing's about to happen. And then it just immediately <laughs> cuts off because Lyra gets hit by a car. That's like how it ends. And they just like use the music to this great comedic effect. It's like in Mulan where they're like all singing about a girl worth fighting for. Then suddenly they're like, oh, fuck. Uh, it was kind of like that, but <laughs> less, less, less like everyone died already. Yeah. Oh, unbelievable. So good. Just, just, just for folks' reference, the theme that she's talking about is this one. Ah! <laughs> 
But she's talking also about how this cord builds up at the end of that because that happens as she's walking through the window and Will's like, hey, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> then there's this big cord that builds up and all of a sudden, bam, she's she's sitting yeah. on the side of the road. A car's hit her. <laughs> that was funny. That was great. And that, that's another one of those uh, things that you point out that's fantastic is how music can uh, create a, a whole different vibe. It, what if he'd have played something really dark and, and ugly there? Would we have been more concerned for Lyra being hurt? You know, all of those things can make a huge difference. But in the way that you put it and the way that he did it, just the push makes it comical to a point where it's like, oh, see, that's what you get for running out into a place that you don't know. So love it. And whomst amongst us has not almost been hit by a car. Oh, it's happened to me. No. <laughs> oh, definitely. But at the same time, do you guys think that this is foreshadowing Lyra's treatment of Pan this series? The fact that several times she made Pan jump in her bag or get hit by a car or uh, treated Pan very poorly. Is that foreshadowing for next season? Now I'm sad. <laughs> As I said, now I'm, now I'm sad because th- this is what makes me the saddest is Pan or Lyra. Lyra really? having to leave Pan is that's the moment. Like the end is sad too. It's very sad. But I, I want to come back. I to lose that. it when she has to leave him on the shore every time. Every time. Oh, yeah. I can't. Oh, I can't God, take yeah. it. Who doesn't? Are you human? Like, I mean, you have to. Um, sorry, I'm going to go on a tangent and chase that now. Do you see that? Do you see that as the great betrayal? Because Philip Pullman does. I do. And I saw it as Roger. Interesting. It's, I think it's either. I think Roger is almost like a red herring, you know? And you can yeah. believe it. But yeah. this is even greater. I don't know. but I, And she does this betrayal... Because she betrayed Roger, like she's ha- she's just doing it to make. Oh, True. I don't know. It all just betrayal comes. Betrayal, fix it. Betrayal, she has yeah. to fix Ugh. it. Ugh. Yeah, it it's is so all interconnected. Unfair. Absolutely, it it's is so all connected. Unfair. But damn, um, yeah, I don't know. I thought you were saying that it was foreshadowing for me eventually getting hit by a car. I was like, damn, <laughs> what the fuck? Um, no, oh my god, I was. <laughs> I don't know. I was like, what the shit? In the words of Panna Layman in season two, unbelievable. Unbelievable. <sighs> that is that episode. Quote. That is that episode. Um, I'm still saying that to my cats. I hope you know that. Like whenever I move uh, my cats against their will, I just go unbelievable. Against that's, their that's will. That's what I picked up on Eliana. Against their will. You have a will too. <laughs> um, have you met a cat? Oh my no, god! I meant, you know they don't want to do I shit. I meant you have a will, Perry. <laughs> oh, ah! I wish. Ugh. <laughs> Can we pause and talk about how cute Amir Wilson is, by the way? Oh, my God. He's so adorable. <laughs> that boy, he's a handsome young yes, lad, he is. isn't he? And he is. Those kids, you know, a lot of people are worried about them getting older. I don't really care about that. I don't. I mean, I don't... I'm worried about it. It looks like Amir ages a little throughout this series. Or maybe it's just he got beat up more. Because I was, like, watching the beginning, rewatching some of those beginning episodes. I'm like, he looks so young and innocent here and then in the end he's like i'm haggard and i watched my dad die in front of me yeah there's definitely i to me there's definitely a difference between the way that amir looks in series one and the way he looks in series two daphne i don't think uh aged quite as much as amir did in between seasons i don't know she's she's getting older too but 
Honestly, I don't think it's a big deal because yeah. they already are exactly. 12 and 13. Right. Like, that's yeah. apparent. And yeah. I think, like, honestly, I, I think that the suspension of disbelief is already a little hard in some of the things they go through, obviously. And not saying it's not possible, but they are young heroes and heroines. Uh, I think that it'll be fine for TV. And I think also we're lucky that I mean, some shows like Doctor Who put it right in their premise, right? They're like, recasting happens every couple of years when contracts are up. But for this, I think it's okay because it's about puberty. So it doesn't really matter because, like, it it also makes it like their bond will be stronger in a way. Like, if you are perceiving them aging Mm. more and that they're going through a journey together. Also, time moves differently, maybe, in the world they're going to. You know? How about that? Let let me borrow your guys' opinion on this since since we've got the scholars in the room and I'm the kitchen boy. When, in episode six of this series... When the specter attacks uh, Reyna, the witch, and Lyra tells Will to pull the knife out, mm-hmm. and he knows exactly where to chase them, so he's seeing them now. Is that right? I don't. I didn't interpret it that way. <sighs> really, because he pointed the knife at him. They scooted off to the right. He went right around to the corner, right around to the right corner, right after him. And I don't see how, if he can't see them, that he does it. That he does that. I I, I don't remember it specifically in the scene, but I just kind of assumed he was maybe he was just following the witch's eyes, who can see them. Um, mm. I don't. Maybe so. It it could have been clumsy directing, but I think in one scene and earlier in the series they showed him almost just almost seeing a shimmer. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I agreed. Yeah. At right after they got the knife and they were headed back to the tavern. Yeah, he saw it. I mean, and Angelica does say to him, you know, like, oh, soon. You're going to see him soon. So I don't yeah. think that it's like canon that he saw them per se, but I think he's on the verge of seeing them so he could at least feel their presence probably. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the thing is you could probably feel their presence. Also, he does this thing where he brandishes it first one direction where they aren't, and then he turns around and realizes where they are by the witch mm. is kind of how the stage directing works. So it could have been kind of awkward just stage movement yeah. because that set is kind of like all the rock everywhere, you know, and they have to stay in one line and he can only turn so much, block the actresses that are behind him so much. Because that's the thing is he has to make sure he's not blocking the witch as she's like behind him collapsing. The more convincing part of that shot was this to me was the specters darting to the right and then him going to the right specifically. I'm going to have to rewatch it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe. I just, yeah. I was just going to say like earlier, I mean, like if they age, I mean, it's believable regardless. And and seeing the shimmers could be as well. Like it's a sign of, you know, even Lyra saying that she feels herself changing. Right. And I think that's part of changing, right? You start... At that age, I mean, you know, so far from that age now, um, <laughs> in my late days, um, and <laughs> and uh, you know, you you do start to get glimpses of and start having those your thoughts, like the way that you think, starts changing and things like that. And I mean, like. Things are wildly different in puberty, and if they even look older, like, kids hit growth spurts, you know, and, like, next thing you know, like, one kid is, uh, I have a funny story about a friend who, she was, like, what, tallest kid in her eighth grade class, but now she's, like, the shortest 
amongst a lot that of that was friends. me but. um actually i was i was <laughs> i'm as tall as i am now in eighth grade five seven which is not that tall but oh. like i went to a small school and there, um yeah i was the like maybe the second tallest girl and then a lot of people passed me up in high school i, I was just done Actually, 5'7 is not short. As a 5'7, we are technically above average for right. women. I guess Chloe's really we're, tall, we're not like though. supermodel tall. The six feet requirement, if that's still a thing. Mm. It mm. was back in the 90s. Mm. They let us in at 5'11 now, don't oh. worry. <laughs> we know We know you're the tallest lady. <laughs> well, uh, Holly, I, I'm 5'11. Uh, Holly, I'm the same way as you. I grew, I grew to a whopping 5'8 and a half. And then nothing. So I'm I really got towered over by the boys by the time we were done with high school. <laughs> but yeah, so anything could happen in puberty. Um yeah. puberty is a time where you're between different stages in your life. In a way you are kind of between the worlds. So let's talk about let's talk about that. Nice transition. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank I, you. I need to learn segues from you, Elia. <laughs> Oh, don't Chloe's encourage like, her don't, bad don't behavior. Chloe's like, don't, don't, she's a bad influence. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to talk about the theme song because, it, I mean, we got yeah. to. We have to. It's iconic. I loved it in the first season and on every episode watch, I loved it more and more. And then I think I even mentioned that I didn't even really notice the difference in instrumentation right away, but I think I did. I just didn't realize I did um, because I, it was just, it just felt bigger and it's that added uh brass i think um matt referred to it earlier it just just feels bigger and bolder and better and fuller uh like more worlds like it's like there's more worlds inside of the theme song this time around because as we're seeing more worlds i don't know but it, it went really hard and i think i didn't realize it at first because every time i heard it i was just so excited to have it back it just i think my level of excitement was matching the um, the theme song um, in my ears. I don't know. I loved it, though. I loved it. No, you're spot on. Uh, Mr. Balf said several times this season that he reworked the brass parts. I mean, the first season, basically, the only time you really heard the brass was during that that, that low part. That's where it really stuck out. And there were other parts in there, uh, but they were buried way down in the mix. And I'm not sure if that he had had those being played at pianissimo or whatever while the strings were carrying the bulk of the weight and other instruments were carrying the bulk of the weight. But uh, he definitely reworked some of those brass bits for the main theme this time around. So good ears, Holly. Excellent ears. Learn from the best. Mm. I paid her to say that. <laughs> he, pays, Beautiful. he pays me nothing. Really good. <laughs> oh, she's hourly, you guys. She's hourly. He pays me with very kind this... editing. <laughs> maybe, maybe by the end of the episode, depending on where we are in our lives, maybe this will be the episode where we suddenly do a beautiful acapella version, all of us, of the theme song. Which set of? Uh, let's see how we're feeling. Which set of lyrics are we going to use? The season one lyrics or the season two lyrics? You're you're the Latin no. expert, not me. No, Dude, no, neither the of us lyrics took Latin. are. Listen, the lyrics are. You know the lyrics. You do it every single week. I don't know why I'm telling you the lyrics, okay? See? Those are the words. 
Laura Mipsum. Oh my god, did you say Laura Mipsum? I love you so much. I did, yes. I got so got this season. You know, I have a I have that knack for looking at details too closely. They got me on the Laura Mipsum a couple times, you guys. They got me a couple times. I was like, oh, this is fake Latin and it means nothing. Yeah. Damn it, painting practice. One of the things that I love about Valf is that uh, when he puts new versions out that have Latin lyrics, he will post what they are and their translation, which I I don't know Latin, so he could be totally fooling me and I wouldn't know the difference. But nonetheless, I appreciate it when, when he does that stuff. Yeah, him doing that this series has been so helpful, actually, because I remember last year at the beginning of the series, he ended up posting them about halfway or a couple episodes into the series because there's a bunch of us at Reddit that were trying to figure out each word and what it meant. Uh, so he, he finally hooked us all up, so we don't have to do that anymore, and it's kind of nice. It is nice. It is nice of him to do, especially for somebody who's, you know, again, a kitchen boy like me. <laughs> Speaking of kitchen boys, <laughs> let's talk about... Roger. Who? Oh, you like, her I like that one better. Not mine. Thanks, Eliana. Yeah. Oh, rude. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. I like it equally as well, Eliana. I like it equally. As well. I taught her everything I know. No, you oh, didn't. Wait, if you had, I would be better at this. <laughs> well, I was doing a good sad listen to Where is Roger? Which is beautiful, right? It's swooping. It has the Lyra theme and Oxford theme within it. And that against I Had a Best Friend, which, Matt, I know you're going to regale me with everything that's within I Had a Best Friend soon, but I Had a Best Friend has a lot of the slower Oxford and Lyra themes and the strings at the beginning, and the contrast of the middle end of the songs really stands out. The end of I Had a Best Friend is really heavy, heavy music, very emotional, but the end of Where's Roger is light and feels hopeful and open. I found that juxtaposed really, really interestingly. Yeah, those, that stuff is beautiful. He goes through so many themes in that particular cut that it's it's hard to keep up with all of them, but he's got the... That's the reference to the prophecy theme. He's got the Mrs. Coulter melody, uh, which ends up going down here. And then he, it's got the, the main theme in it as well. And it's also got the Mrs. Coulter chords. It shifts keys and goes to here. And uh, then it's also got the, the specter part in it. Not only that, but then the, the specter chords, which are just really bizarre. They like go... Uh, I don't even know what the second, what the last one is. Um, let's see. It all goes around this kind of uh, diminished chord is the way that that's all built around... Um, and then finally, it's got the, the Ruta Scotti theme uh, at the end of it as well. Oh. So it, it just goes through so many different things that it's hard for me to place it in the episode, actually. Oh, it's the bench, right? Yeah, is I it think the bench? it is the bench. 
It's the bench. Mm. Oh, that fucking bench. God damn it. God damn it, Bonner <laughs> bench. Also rude. I think it's really interesting that Ruta Scotty's theme gets worked into that, right? Uh, another song that has all of those big motifs kind of hanging out together is Tortured Witch. You started off with Coulter torturing her and the music is very different, but as you get to that very end, it becomes an opera piece, right? The 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 very end is the the strings going as Ruta just murders them all. Oh, it's so good. God, it was so good. So emotional. She's flying there. She's like, I hear you. I'm going to come save you, girl. I got you. It's me, Ruta Scotty. She flies there. She shows up and then she does the murder stuff and then she's all, bah, da, da, bah, bah, you know, right. Uh, that was my melodica. Thank you. It was my voice. <laughs> so, but that was another song that has like all these themes at the beginning. It has that prophecy kind of theme going, that melody playing, and then it gets emotional and then it becomes all of a sudden huge switch. And I really like how much he was able to fit in and layer with that kind of two layer switch in, switch out, fade in, fade out system he's doing this series. A lot to work in together is the other thing. He has a lot of characters to make happen together, and he did it really well. Yeah, and one of the biggest challenges for composers absolutely is if you have, like, montage scenes, if you have scenes where you're switching perspectives a lot, um, a way to be narrative with that can be really challenging to work themes together as well. So, again, excellent job by Mr. Balf. There are a couple of really good themes as we talk about some of these characters that have been drawn together through the world. And yes, we got a glimpse at Andrew Scott's Joppery, whatever that pronunciation is that I now am using. I, it does sound like Joffrey, and that's kind of how I keep it in my head. Uh, yeah. I get it. Like, I literally get it, but it also mm, is problematic. It, it makes me think of how, oh, that must be what the tribe could say when they said his name of people that he then became the shaman of whatever. Anyways, I digress. I got it. I hate it. I'm going to do it anyway. So Joppery. Yes, John Perry. We met him in series one, albeit briefly from some YouTube videos. <laughs> and now he's back full time in this series. Sexy priest. Yeah. Right. Hot or priest. Whatever. Hot, Hot priest. priest. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Sorry. Don't crucify me there. Yeah, we, uh, we call Matt. him Hot Shaman. In our podcast. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we do. Uh, hot Matt, Matt, Well, Hot Matt Shaman. Matt started Fleabag finally. Did you get to season two yet, buddy? I finished it all. <gasps> it was beautiful. Did you cry? <laughs> it was beautiful, though. It was. Yeah, it was It was amazing. I, uh, I, there's some very moving moments in that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a lot. Speaking of, you know, sympathetic, potentially female villains? I don't know. <laughs> but coming back to the shaman. Yeah, the, the shaman theme... I think it it's called in the anthology track, The Shaman, but the melodic shape of that. Again, very related to Lee Scoresby's theme. Also very related to the Children of the Prophecy theme. If I play the Children of the Prophecy theme in that key... All of the exact same notes, which musically connects the lineage between John Perry and Will, oh. which I love uh, that they do that. But again, I, I'm a sucker for Copeland. And one of the most beautiful treatments of that particular theme for me uh, was him and Lee in the balloon. And uh, there was this very wonderfully Copeland-esque kind of version of that. 
typically, Chloe, I had seen that you had made a note that you like the way that the the trumpet sounds in some of this stuff. And I think that the probably 90% of the time that this theme was played, we did hear a trumpet play it. But my my favorite version is actually the second half of on the uh, official soundtrack of the female scholar. Uh, it then uh, plays that Copeland-esque version. It's kind of like the second half of the track. You have Mary's theme in one part and then uh, the shaman's theme in the other part. But that's done with a slightly lower brass, which I love. It's got a French horn or trombone, which I've yet to decide. It's either a really, really beautifully played trombone, and Mr. Balf is a huge trombone fan. Uh, he specifically wrote that line so that he could hear bass trombones play that. <laughs> it's what he told me. He said, I love the fact that, uh, that I can get that splat out of him. Uh, so he loves brass, and we've talked a lot about how he's used a lot more brass this series than he did last series. And I can't decide whether it's a, a beautifully done French horn <laughs> or a beautifully done trombone, but that's the version of it that I truly love. I love that, and I will say for those listening at home that uh, the lyrics in Latin to that part of the song are bum, 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 <laughs> just so you know. Is that, just wow, sure amazing. That's amazing. Latin. I know Latin. See, I do know Latin. Latin. Can, you translate, can you translate that for me, Chloe? Yes, it means bum, 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 bum. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> How I mean, amazing. I mean, I'm looking at the series in a whole new way. I am. Well, I you're at the scholar that. table now. I am. Yeah. I finally reached the scholar table. <laughs> Uh, do you guys, do you guys want some crumpets? Can I bring you? Yeah. Can I bring you an omelet? Oh my god! Omelette. No eggshells, please. Omelet. Omelet. <laughs> do fromage. Uh, um. <laughs> no, I jest. But yeah. something interesting about all of this added brass. City in the sky, a track uh, that comes City up later on. Sky. Oh. Not Spirit in the Sky, though I feel very similarly, and that probably should be on our His Dark Materials playlist now that I say that. I digress that the City in the Sky track is such a huge combo of brass. That's where Lauren had a lot of fun with brass, did he not? And this song, uh, this, this theme kind of leading up there with that kind of lower brass treatment, in the female scholar, but later on with City in the Sky, there's a lot of different brass that actually comes together so well with the strings and isn't too overbearing. It's really nice. Mm-hmm. He's always used brass very well. As we talked about with the uh, Lee's Choice, the very end of that, it's not nearly as poignant if he doesn't have that high trumpet playing that note at the very end in the swell. Uh, that's one of the things that just make that just tear into your gut at the end. Because that's right as Seraphina is flying off to go towards, uh, to mm-hmm. find Lee. And, or actually, I think the shot is actually on, on Lyra's face after she's just flown off. But the, the poignancy of the way that brass can be used, and I love the, that you pointed that out, Chloe, because when used properly, a single note from a trumpet can say uh, worlds around what a piano can do, uh, playing furiously and fastly, as I often did playing in blues bands for years. So uh, I, I, I just love saying as much as you can with as few notes as possible. To me, that makes a lot of sense that he can use that brass and balance it out with the strings so well. I often 
wonder also because he used uh, the National Orchestra of Wales for the original uh, series, for series one. This time around, he used the Vienna Orchestra. And depending on the locale and the type of recordings used, say if the National Orchestra of Wales had recorded last seasons were at the same location where the Vienna Orchestra recorded this season, how might the, the mixes have been a little different? Because you do, you throw up just tons and tons of microphones around the whole orchestra, and what really makes the sound of an orchestra isn't the direct instruments that the mics are picking up, but the bleed through from across the room or the way that the sound bounces on the walls and that um, creates a whole different timbre in itself, a whole different set of uh, sonic frequencies that can really come through in a recording. If you're an in engineers, uh, they go through this kind of stuff all of the time. I remember one time recording a record that we spent six hours getting a tom a, a drum tom to sound right <laughs> and it was costing it was costing us a ton of money uh but uh, this engineer was very particular <laughs> and so you had to you had to go through those kinds of things because they do make a difference so i, I would have loved mm -hmm. to have heard uh either the vienna orchestra recording in the national orchestra of wales uh location or vice versa just to see what differences in mixes we would have had. So my musical background is not near Matt's on as far as like performing in an ensemble or performing with other people. My problem is I'm an only child and I don't get along with people and I've been a problem in almost every band I've been in. Anyways, I digress. I am a problem, but uh, I did once record an EP when I was like, 17, 16 years old, right? Not to flex on everyone. It was a long time ago. But I recorded an EP once. And this doesn't work for instruments, but my voice was messed up and I had to have whiskey, which smooths the vocal cords. Okay. Right. Right. Uh, and musically, I mean, it, it depends on what you're playing. If you have strings, if you have violin, you can, you know, wax your bow a little more. You can retune your guitar. But that's not something that just happens. So hearing kind of an orchestra actually play all of it and have a full sound is wild. It is a wild thing to hear for every single song. And I know that shows like Game of Thrones and Westworld have soundtracks and Ramen is amazing. Ramen Shui is so good. But like, there's something about these songs, something in The Shaman or something even in, uh, we'll talk about Yorick's theme in a minute, but even in just the foundational songs in series one that feel like magic, right? Like it feels like fantastical magic. You know, the Harry Potter wintry Hogsmeade theme that makes you feel like you're literally in Harry Potter. Like you have a robe on and you're there. Like that's what I feel when I hear the shaman and when I hear all of these songs. Mm. And I don't know what the magic is, but Lauren has captured it. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. And I think, um, I feel like that's captured so well also in Between the Worlds. Yeah, I didn't know it had a name. I was like, what the shit? Um, well, something that Eliana was right about in the finale, or in the series in general, was seeing Yorick this year. Eliana was very gung-ho. I don't know if it's because her senses were bubbling or if she just really loves Yorick. It could be a mix of both, personally. But she was right. He was there. And his theme was, too. 
he didn't have a speaking role, so I felt I was like, "What about?" He said, "I know that bird's paycheck." <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did say, "I know that bird." Oh, in the finale, you mean? Um, in the finale, no, we no, just not, he's not. just looking like, at the glaciers falling, melting. Yeah, I mean, I guess he's not in the book, so we should be thankful that he yeah. appeared at all. But I was just like, "Poor Joe." I'm worried about his his salary, his paychecks. <laughs> he got one speaking line. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. He's probably making. He's voice actors, man. They make a whole lot of money. But uh, the funny thing is, is that you mentioned that we heard his theme. I actually didn't hear it in this season, which was very weird. Uh, when Kaiser flew to him, now I'd have. Go back. Maybe I just missed it, and I'll have to go back I and rewatch the episode. But I actually didn't hear it this season because the theme that I'm used to hearing from him is this. All done with low brass, all done with trombones. You hear it prevalent in series one uh, when he's charging to get his armor back. Also, my favorite version is the way that it just sneaks up out of the middle of nowhere in the sixth episode during the Battle of Balvanger. And that's where you find it on the season one soundtrack is the Battle of Balvanger. Uh, right at about 139, all of a sudden his music just pops up in the middle of it going along with all of the other action things that are going along it, just the same way that he just kind of popped up to, and Lyra saw him for the first time as he was, you know, throwing Magisterium and, and everybody around. Uh, he just kind of pops in and says hi to Lyra uh, from overhead. And that's when that music shows up. And I loved that. Uh, and that theme is uh, so powerful. It's got this really neat harmonic twist to it. It goes to a place you don't expect. And, I I just I that's one of my favorite just overall themes in general, but especially that appearance in the, in that particular episode, the demon cages. Yeah, I thought I had heard elements of it in I think it was what Kaiser Kaiser reveal is that the Kaiser song when Kaiser has his little. Yeah, Kaiser reveal actually went underneath where okay. Serafina showed up to save the kids from. Uh, that's what it Angelica was. I thought I'd heard elements of it in one of the songs on the album, but. I'm pretty sure it was mixed in. If it was, it wasn't anything prevalent. But I swear I thought I had heard something. And maybe it was during the Northern posters in the university with the the exact mm. melodic lines mm-hmm. he played. Yeah, yeah. Looking I want to say it was yeah. bits in that maybe then. Yeah. The overture, not Kaiser reveal. But. Well, like I said, it's been uh, several episodes since that that meeting with Kaiser yeah. and Yorick happened. So I might re- just require a re- rewatch Honestly, to find out. Honestly, I need out. a whole watch of the overarching season uh-huh. because I feel like there are certain things now, especially like after seeing each up, there were episodes where there were some lulls. It doesn't mean it was bad. It just means that there were a couple scenes that I was like, all right. I'm waiting, and now watching a handful of scenes that I needed to to prepare for this, for example, or other things, things feel better as an overarching story than they did watching every week on a Monday night, several days after other countries. (laughs) Several. I mean, they can't all be bangers, Chloe. I said that before, and I stand by it. You gotta have some interludes every now and then on, like, the album, alright? We can't just all... (laughs) 
<laughs> be lit. Oh, we can't all be Lauren all Bell. All the time. Okay? <laughs> all the time. <laughs> well, there was actually a lot less incidental music, is what mm-hmm. we call it in the biz, uh, in this particular series than there was in any television series that I've ever heard of. I likened it to Lost, actually. Giacchino always, always using character motives, and there was very little incidental music. But in uh, this particular season, wow, there almost everything was theme-oriented, which I absolutely loved. For instance, that Bolvanger cut that I was just talking about uh, a second ago, that's mostly not thematic. That's mostly just specifically written for that action set piece. Uh, with just an appearance of themes here and there. And that was not the case this particular season at all, which I, I personally loved because it mm. made it easier to keep track of things. Interesting. <laughs> I have a lot of, uh, you'll be probably familiar with him, but like Thomas Bergeson, for example. Are you familiar with any of his music, Matt? Uh, only somewhat familiar. He does a lot of soundtracky, fantasy, super medieval kind of music that it, it could be filler. It, it's probably been purchased for a handful of movies you might hear it in a couple uh and there's a handful of different osts that have songs that are like that but it's like medievally background music but there are some things that are so background and they just fit in for a battle scene etc but i mean lauren operates like a musical casting director Uh. like the second he understands who a character is and where a character has to be throughout the story and where that character's story is going, he writes for that. And he writes for the actor as well. He said it in interviews, as I know you know, that like he writes for these actors and who their character is and how they play them. And I just think that's really interesting because I think it is a very, and we've said it, that they're just being very considerate with how they handle all characters, all plots. Uh, let's not be hasty in saying i mean the witches this series they were amazing everything Mm. was fixed right i've been likening it to that uh moment from the avengers where samuel L. jackson is like i understand the council has said this is their decision and i've elected that's a dumbass decision and that's what i felt like with the witches they just fixed it there were band-aids and they were like this is better now and it was and lorne is not one to just like make a song for the show Every song has a meaning, and he now, especially in series three, when he has themes that he's going to have to write for, oh, melodic moments for the Galavespians, melodic moments for the angels. There's a lot of the stuff Malefa. he's going to have to write. Exactly. That could be a he has to keep it tight. Malefabilities. He has to keep it tight. <laughs> Oh my god! It is a that's a double M. A Malefa mode. She's hired because I'm fired. (laughs) Thank you. Fired. Absolutely fired. Hired. You can have her. You guys can have her. No, hired. Hired. (laughs) Matt, (laughs) you could join me that if you're gonna take this. I got fired a lot less on this season. He Matt used to fire me all the time. Was it was a season eight? (laughs) You fired me every week, Matt. Well, that was just because I had to. Mm. Every once in a while, you know, you just got to, once you start something, you just can't end it. (laughs) So I had to make up reasons to fire her. And then I would instantly rehire her at the end of the I haven't been rehired ever, I think. I don't know Uh, why I'm still here. They all cancel. And yet you keep coming back. See, that's that's a real professional right there. You just keep coming back. Worse, she keeps editing the episodes. You'd think if you were fired after an amount of time, you'd just... (laughs) She just edits out the part where she gets fired, and there you go. <laughs> no, I keep that in so yeah, everyone the knows. The keep coming. Yeah. 
Well, my professional, Eliana, I need you to tell us about the strength of the Egyptians before we go into some of our honorable mentions. Yeah, so this isn't solely actually just about the song, The Strength of the Egyptians, um, but I do want to tip my hat to some of the music for the Egyptian scenes in series one. Uh, and especially yeah. that funeral scene for Billy Costa, where, you know, honestly, and I, I still stand by it, I was looking through our notes uh, as opposed to re-listening to our episodes, but our notes for that scene last season, and there was a lot that I think we were critical of and in the execution that did leave me wanting, and I still uh, think those are really valid. Uh, you know, re-watching some of the scenes from series one, I'm like, damn, the direction and the way that it the whole series is done feels just so different. Some of those shots, like, visually as well. Yeah. It, it feels like a very different show in many ways, not just because it's a different setting. But I... I thought this was like a, it's different in the way that some of the music is done and that they really just incorporated it. It's it's a vocal element. Uh, the funeral rites where the Egyptians all sing to send Billy off. It, it's very haunting. It's sad. And I just kind of wanted to pay homage to the way that the music was interwoven into the series. Yeah, that theme is beautifully sad. Um, in... In many ways, the theme that he uses under most of the Egyptian scenes has, it, it's beautiful. It has this sadness to it, but it also has this pride to it, which I feel like really uh, exemplifies what that people are all about. And that was one of the things that I loved about it. Um, my favorite version of that particular theme, and I, you know, <laughs> uh, John Fa leading a chorus of people to sing that was extremely moving for me, but more moving for me was the scene um, when they first found out that Billy was missing, I believe. Mm. It, it was a scene that focused on Ma Costa, and I can't remember exactly the scene now because I haven't rewatched that series in, uh series one in so long. But uh, there, there's one very early on in the season um, that just totally gutted me. And uh, Mr. Balf uses in that he uses what we call a Dorian minor as opposed to uh, a pure minor. Uh, and it takes a little bit of the edge off and gives it just enough of an exoticness that makes you feel the pride of those people, which is fantastic. Yeah, I don't remember that scene. I, I haven't watched it as as closely as well either something i remember from that scene was lee and lyra watching right as mm. the funeral rites went on and lee telling her you know like hey back down kid they've just lost their family you just want to wait and let them have it but also i remember the zoom in on sofinax and hester during the singing mm -hmm. uh the very slow zoom in and hester looking so sad and sofinax looking so sad and I think that's really interesting to think about just the sadness of the demons in that moment of those two specifically and of what's to come for Lee yeah. right, in loving Lyra and losing, right? Like in pledging to the cause, not to, to win, not to get money, but for others, for Lyra and Coram as well, right? Coram and Sofinex and the things they've gone through for Lyra as well. And it's just sad. Yeah just sad thinking about it and thinking about some of those ties to the episode we just watched a little bit ago yeah i mean lee's the one who comforts yeah. and as you said uh tells lyra to and guides her through that scene and you know what the lyrics for this song are in english 
everyone, so no need for any Latin expertise here. Ba? Ba translates as ba? Yes. Ba, 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 ba. But the, yes. the, 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 well, the song itself that they sing, right? It's like the dear son, God does never leave oh, yeah. you. Yeah. So yeah. I can understand that. While we can't fit all of the songs of the series in this episode, though Matt may try if we let him long enough, right? But can I can I just name a few? Just a few <laughs> honorable mentions? Just just a few? All right. Uh, Matt, this is your moment to shine. Give us your honorable mentions. Give us a monologue. Go for it, my friend. Okay, well, I, I, I did have 76 planned, but I'll, I'll just <laughs> stick it to maybe two. Uh, the Danger Motive. We actually heard that the first time in the very first episode, actually, when Azrael and Stelmaria were on the cliff uh, taking pictures and the storm was coming in. And I thought, oh, okay, there's a theme for Azrael. And then it showed up later with Mrs. Coulter and when uh, Lyra was uh, trying to find out what the uh, General Oblation Board was and she found all those papers in the office. And then it showed up again time and time again. I thought, oh, this is just about a, a threat. That's what this motive is about. And the best version of that ever was in episode five during the time Lyra sets Pan loose, you know, as a Wolverine on the golden monkey. And from that point on for the rest of that scene, it's all variations of that little motive done rhythmically in such different ways. Like, or, same melodic shape. It is that motive. Again, Mr. Balf, being the drummer and the rhythmologist that he is, loves to use rhythm to disguise theme, but it's still just enough to make you think that that is, seems familiar. What is that? What is that? Uh, it, it's lovely the way that he does that kind of stuff. And that particular sequence was just amazing. And I broke it down on one of our podcasts. It, it, it's something that just fascinated me. It made that particular part of it outside of uh, you know scrambling around trying to talk to our friends from the uk did they say osmandius in the in the uh in the captions or not you know uh so i i searched for screenshots for that forever but that music right there made it for me that entire scene and really built the tension and did a fabulous job with that oh there's also you know we never mentioned boreal's theme we're never gonna see him again uh, it's one of the most exquisite and most complicated themes harmonically uh, that's ever been done for television, period. And I, I love that one as well. And I, I got 74 more, or does someone else have it? <laughs> what do you think about a, a look to the stars? I really love to look to the stars. That was a beautiful series one, right? The end of series one there, I believe. Am I right in that? Uh, I, I, I find it hard to understand anything by title when it's just a cue title. <laughs> Understood. Um, it's, it's always got to be a theme. Can you hum up? Can you, uh, in typical bar, piano bar fashion, can you hum a few bars for me? Yeah, let me think about this. Hold on. Hold on. I wasn't prepared for that, but you know what? For you, Matt, let me just... Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the translation, Eliana? What's the translation? Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> oh, so we got the beginning. You start off slow. It's got Lyra's strings, and it's all... Boo-doo, boo-doo. 
Yeah, that's the main theme. Yeah. Well, okay, that's listen, main, that's, that's the main theme. <laughs> no, it comes... <laughs> God. No, it's it's slower, though. It has lots of strings. Did I can't that last say part that. just for oh, early on. This is... Um, no, this comes... It's in... I want to say it's in episode three of series one. It's a little... Uh, it's after Demons to Dust. It's uh, it's right after The List in Series 1. I don't know how else mm. to tell you because it's literally based on Lyra's theme. But yeah. it, it's slowed down and it's about looking to the stars. And it's right before Gateway to the North, that great mix mm. of Lee's theme a little bit there, right before You Loved a Witch that comes up. So like when mm. she's on the Egyptian boat with uh, Tony looking at the stars? Mm. Yeah, I that believe same? so. I believe that's it. Uh, looking yeah. up at the aurora borealis yeah that would make sense if the main theme is used there a little bit because it is part of the larger story right it's pointing towards what's happening in this particular series this time around so a city in the sky (laughs) (laughs) well you know speaking of uh actually that's not a Mm -hmm. philcor fan song Mm -hmm. at all so this segue doesn't work but (laughs) shit um who had the great flood I did. I just took it off because I was gonna say I like it and nothing else. Um, cause, Talk um, about really, it. I like the. Great I'm flood. good with words. Talk about um, it. Okay, it's the I guess the visual that goes along with it when you're watching it. Uh, just getting to see what that flood looked like. I've experienced floods in my real life, and it's not fun. Hmm. I don't know the the end of that track. It kind of starts to become a little bit more of Lyra's Jordan kind of theme with it. Um, and it's just mm-hmm. it's just really pretty and calming, and I, en- I enjoy it. And the imagery, wet. It's pretty interesting that it becomes Lyra's theme, especially, you know, when you're, you tie it with La Belle yes. Sauvage, the beautiful sausage. <laughs> it makes me wonder what music may have been cut or planned that was in the bottle episode, especially because originally Jack Thorne mentioned ah. that he had wanted to have a flashback to Lyra as a baby in that episode. It got cut. It was cut before the episode was even really happening. He just mentioned that, you know, his uh, ladies in the writing department told him no and said it was too much, thankfully, and fixed that. But it, it, it uh, I, I wonder if there was any music that Lauren was thinking of then, you know? Like, was he thinking of any renditions of the flood in different different tone different mix i don't know yeah because that scene primarily does use a lot of lyra-ish kind of stuff Mm -hmm. uh when you when you look at that initial scene uh after we get our little indoctrination into what this world is and you hear you hear an awful lot of the the prophecy theme and, and and what have you uh especially as asriel and stelmaria are wading through the water and bringing uh lyra to the master so awesome there played by the great clark peters yes yes yeah i loved him so good (laughs) he did a great job i'm really excited to see him again right we should see him again end of season three (laughs) gives gives lyra a spot yeah you mean he gives her he offers her sanctuary i'm so sad okay Let's get unsad for literally three minutes before we get sad one more time. Uh, We're going to move on to a very fun portion of the episode. This is the last leg, right, of our app. And we're going to talk about two things. First, we're going to talk about filk and fan music. So 
just a handful of songs that we've come across that are actually literally written about his dark materials. And after that, we have a little holiday surprise, a little winter cheer for you all from the U.S., which is us. We've compiled a little playlist. I've compiled a handful of songs, and I've had some really great help from Eliana, Holly, and Matt with some other songs to add to it that are about, I don't know, just stuff that makes us think about his dark materials, right? Just songs that make us think about his dark materials. So before we get there, first, I want to talk about, did you know other people like his dark materials besides us? No, really? (laughs) (laughs) Seems like a lie. I I mean, are, are you sure? I know a few others. Like two, maybe three. Four. 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 And they're all famous, it looks like, by your list here. (laughs) Are these our friends? I wish. Oh my god. If Justin Vernon from Bon Iver was my friend, a lot of things would be different. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe not. I don't really know what he's like. But Bon Iver, Bon Iver's lead, Justin Vernon... He's like a really big fan of his dark materials. I did not know this was a thing. You might know Boney Bear from their scratchy high indie vocals against some electronic music where they're like, skinny person. That's kind of what they sound like, but like with some acoustic. But sometimes, sometimes it's a little different. For example, like Skinny Love, which is like, Come on, Skinny Love, just last year. So that's kind of what they sound like usually. Sometimes they're better. And sometimes they're on Taylor Swift's album. Yes. Uh, Exile, featuring Justin Vernon of Bon Bear, But he is a His Dark Materials fan. His song, Ten Death Breast, with lyrics that are, I'll wrap you up and take it by the touch. Darling, don't a failure fright. Time's the breaker, I'll rack it up. I'm unorphaned in our northern lights, de-decoding every demon taken in the tall grass of the mountain cable, and I cannot seem to find I'm able. That is a lyric he wrote. He wrote about demons, y'all. That's... Yeah. And with northern lights. Yeah. That's canon. Orphaned, unorphaned, unorphaned in the northern lights. That's... Mm -hmm. It's about his dark materials. And there's another song, Salem. Yeah, and the lyrics for that one that are related to the series are To speak supportively, big guy, there's no automatic peace But I bet you'd keep all these in-betweens that bar my youth Though no anabaric dream, far as I know I tried too hard to see what I thought it'd be Asking constantly, how's it gonna be? How's it gonna be? Oh, that could be a His Dark Material song Yeah, I... I, I mean, the anabaric definitely. That I, who has written them off. I mean, definitely because of like the the an- anabaric, right? Mm-hmm. Because I remember when I was looking up anabaric and roots in our world, turns out it's not. It's just literally made up for Lyra's world. There's no mistake in that for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's not the only thing he he's in a project, the Staves and Y Music collaboration called "The Way Is Red," and Stavely Taylor has a sister named Millie from this group who who says you wouldn't be able to tell if you didn't know but we connect elements to our music basically that go along with the witch's idea of being ageless or perspective or uh there are certain tracks that they've written on the stavely and why music's collaboration the staves of like 
for example, Take Me Home and The Way is Red, they literally talk at one point about Lyra, how she gets those three rungs below and hits into the alethiometer, right? And hits into reading the alethiometer. And I think that's so interesting that Justin Vernon's not only in one project where he gets to write lyrics about his dark materials, but two projects where he gets to write music about his dark materials and people just keep letting him. That's nuts. This other one links to actually someone who's in, who is in the show, interestingly. I don't know if either of you or any of you, I don't think you have, Eliana, have listened or watched In the Heights, the musical. No? I have not. I know it exists. Lin-Manuel Miranda has said that When the Sun Goes Down from In the Heights was inspired by Will and Lyra. It's very emotional if you know the musical. It's very sad. But the lyrics that uh, most speak to me from this one are, You know that I'll be waiting when you're gone, but you're here with me right now. We'll be working hard, but if we should drift apart, let me take this moment just to say, You're going to change the world someday. I'll be thinking of home, and I'll think of you every night at the same time. When the sun goes down. When the sun goes down. When the sun goes down. Yeah, so it's unfair. So I think that alone right there, I'm like, Lin-Manuel, you're allowed to be Lee Scoresby. <laughs> That's a Lee Scoresby thing. Lee Scoresby would write lyrics about Will and Lyra. Totally. That was one of the and, things that really drew him and his wife together, isn't it? Yes. The whole historic I, mean, I think they read it like as a couple. Um, yeah, it was pretty cute. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. I, I have a similar story to that. Me and, and the guy I was dating at the time when I started reading the books, he started reading it too. And we both got like pretty into it. And uh, we've been broken up for like uh, four or five years now. But we we were texting recently about the show. So, I mean, uh. you know, sometimes you could still talk about your favorite things with your you guys all have people to share this stuff with i just sit at home waiting for somebody to send me a tweet what matt, do you think do holly a, is matt we do a whole a podcast together yeah. a whole, <laughs> yeah. whole podcast literally like weekly twice a week where have you been yeah but well i, I mean holly's always schooling me so much that i don't feel like i can False. properly express <gasps> myself False. oh are we mediating matt listen <sighs> You know, Matt, if you uh, want, this is a safe space, you know, we can just beat these out. <laughs> totally yeah. giving you guys trouble. Uh, no. <laughs> I would not be able to do this podcast without Holly. There's no doubt about that. I kind of like her, too. Don't tell her, though. Yeah. <laughs> I'm embarrassed. I'm blushing. Ah. Eliana, I know you're not a big metalhead, but you have found a metal band to tell us about. We've mentioned it before in episodes. Now's your time to shine. So this is actually a fascinating find. I think I found it because I was like looking up the pronunciation of Taliatea Makara, which uh, is is in the maybe it's in the Amber Spy Glass mm-hmm. where that term comes up, and it's called it means the last knife of all. Um, and I don't know if I pronounced that right, because believe it or not, another one of the languages I do not speak along with Latin is Greek. And um, what came up for that search was also Isahitra. And I was like, yes, that's true. Those are both the same thing <laughs> from the books. But turns out Isahitra is, in fact, a metal band. And Taliatea Makara is one of their metal songs. Hmm. Interesting. 
I, as soon as I saw this in the notes, I went through uh, their Bandcamp page and I listened to the the album that they had up, and I noticed that uh, their cut four is called "Among Witches," and uh, one of the things that I noticed was that the opening sounded like this. <laughs> And then it shifts to where you have the same top note, but all of the harmony shifts down a half step. And that's exactly, and what I find funny about this is the fact that Lauren Balf used that exact same kind of treatment, but for the opposite of the witches, he used it for the magisterium, where it's uh, with New Cardinal Rises, the McPhail theme. The bottom shifts down a half step, but the top stays the same. We call it side slipping, or I call it side slipping. I don't know what the technical term is. I'm sure that if I went back through my you know, volumes and volumes of music theory stuff from 30 years ago, I could probably find it and tell you what the exact technical phrase is. Not, uh, not in this case, but I, I just loved uh, hearing that kind of same musical approach used for a similar type of idea, genre, even though they do come from different angles. I think you hear a lot yeah. of that. Uh, metal tends to sometimes have dramatics, <laughs> right, is the easiest way to call it. Sometimes you get that build up, that rise. Yeah. Well, and that's the easygoing part. That's before it goes into the whole, you know, the actual crunching <laughs> stuff. But that's just the kind of beginning of in- yeah. guitar intro. Loved it though. It was fan- fantastic. Love that cut. Yeah, there's a couple bands like that. I don't. Have you ever listened to From Autumn to Ashes? Is that song familiar? No. no. They're kind of a heavier band, but there's a song. There are two songs actually. There's one called Short Stories with Tragic Endings, which ironically is not short. It is like several minutes, many many minutes. One of those long ass like six, seven, eight, nine minute songs. Uh, but it, it starts off with this beautiful whining violin, right? Like this tragic, sad melody. And then it just goes with the violin, just all. And I love shit like that. I love what, yeah. Eliana's like busting her head right now. She's head because I love shit like that. You get that violin leading you in and then you're in and it's heavy on you. And I don't know, not bad. So I was into that. I, uh. I don't listen to a lot of heavy stuff anymore in my older age, but uh, I used to get pretty down with that, so I could appreciate Isahetra. I could. All right, everyone, this brings us into the most exciting, the most freeing, the the no rules, no more... The free will. Yeah, free will, free him. Will someone please free him? Or my blanket? No one knows. It could be either. Free my blanket. Anyways, I've made... A handy dandy little playlist. You guys have added some songs that I have thrown in. There's going to be a link to Spotify with the playlist. I'm unafraid of all of you people judging my habits, the songs I listen to. So no, I will not go private. I am not afraid. You will get the playlist link. It will take you to my personal Spotify. But if you do not have a Spotify... You can check out the track listing, which will be available at our Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where this episode will be posted. We'll also have a few significant lyrics highlighted for you. And, you know, if you're not done being sad about his Dark Materials Series 2, Eliana and I have a home for you. Matt and Holly have a home for you. It's with us. Come get sad. Listen to the music with us. 
and we're going to jump in. Let's talk some of our favorite songs that remind us of His Dark Materials. Matt, what do you got? First, I just want to say that I checked out your playlist and I loved it. Uh, Anything Iron and Wine will always get my attention because uh, I played in a band a long time ago, 10 plus years ago, but we covered Naked As We Came, which is one of the cuts that you have on there. I hadn't even at that time exposed myself to anything, his dark materials or Philip Pullman or anything like that. But now that I've listened to that song again, it, it does uh, remind me a lot of, of <laughs> his dark materials and of Philip Pullman. I love that. And I've, I can't say that I'm an original Imogen Heap hipster, so to speak, because uh, it wasn't until like the Fru-Fu album that I got on board with her. Uh, but the album that, uh, her song is is from uh, the the album Speak for Yourself. Hide and Seek that record, the whole record is just an amazing record. And one of the things that I've always loved about that is that that particular song really essentially created a whole new industry for the synth industry because uh, it repopularized the vocoder, which was an instrument that was used a lot where you blew into it and you played chords on a piano. You could only find them after the 70s. You could really only find them, maybe Moog would make one every once in a while, but you generally only found them in a studio. You only found them, and only high dollar studios, say like in Minneapolis, like in Nashville, like in LA, like in New York. They were pretty rare to find. And then all of a sudden this song comes out and every synth line, I had a Roland sponsorship for years. And uh, when Roland uh, came out, with their version of it, I had to try it out. I was horrible at it. I, it, it didn't work for me because uh, I, I wasn't that great at it. But Roland and Yamaha and uh, Moog and just everybody came out with their own version of of a vocoder. The exact next year, by the, the by the next year, there were there were models of it anywhere, and you could get them relatively cheap. Uh, so I don't know if that uh, killed the incentive for everybody to keep using it or if it uh, it made it that much more accessible and you heard hide and seek a lot in the clubs. <laughs> um, but I, I just love those two cuts. Yeah. Uh, so that's my thoughts on that. Um, the, the first time as... I heard that Imogen Heap song, it was 2006 and I was at a grad party. Or 2007. I remember the exact place, the exact time. Some kids were playing like home laser tag. They had their own laser tag stuff. And I just remember kids were outside playing laser tag. It was like 11 p.m. And then, of course, it was popularized with Garden State soundtrack, which is one of the best soundtracks of all time of any movie ever created, the Garden State. 100% 100% agree. Uh, amazing, oh right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. There's nothing bad or wrong with that album. And you should listen to that and go on rainymood.com while you do and just blast the rain. That's what I do when I'm sad, which is often. But uh, I guess the Jason Derulo song is what bigly, to use a, a bad adjective, popularized it, like hugely popularized the song. And of course, the cultural moment that was thanksgiving and what was it series three of gossip girl uh at thanksgiving when jason derulo's mocha say was played so that song has had such culture it has evolved over time it has gone many places and i feel like now the biggest moment of 
that song of hide and seek's life is being on this playlist so it's canon there you go i mean it's got a lot of popularity amongst teen dramas in general i believe what that same song before jason drulo was also in that uh scene in the oc which i actually haven't watched but I believe they also used that same scene and then they spoofed it, right? In I've seen the OC, but sp- now it's been a long time and I can't remember. The one where everyone gets shot. Oh, okay. Like, a bazillion people get shot. I think it's that. And then I think they Jesus. spoofed it on, like, what was it? SNL or something like that. And people just kept getting Dark. shot and coming back to life and shooting each other. And I was like, I don't understand yeah. this reference because I didn't watch the OC at that time. <laughs> but I'm, I'm thinking of adding it to my list. It is the same... I think producer, right, as Gossip Girl. And uh, I think I came across Imogen Heap, maybe through Fru Fru, surfing mm-hmm. on MySpace or Zanga, and someone just had it playing. If anyone remembers Zanga. Yep, I had at least four Zangas. I remember it very well. There was XXK, thanks, OMG, STFU. <laughs> I don't say that one lightly. I'm willing to reveal it to you all. <laughs> I will never reveal it. That was mine. it. They're all gone now. Yeah, they are, thankfully. <laughs> Holly, what makes you sad about his dark materials besides, you know, like Will and Lyra, Lee Scoresby? I mean, musically, outside of the actual music. I think the direction I kind of went with was, at least for this first one, just kind of the whole world and the journey itself. So I, I'm i a big fan of Pussifer. Uh just a big yes. fan of Maynard James Keenan in general. I know that's controversial maybe to some people. I don't care. He's talented. Um, and uh, this song is one of my favorites from the Conditions of My Parole album, which I think in general, this album is kind of a story of a person's life from birth to death. Uh, but this one stood out uh, called uh, Green Valley. Just lyrically, literally, the lyrics are talking about strangers meeting and having to go on a journey together. No direction but to follow what you know. No direction but a faith in her decision. No direction but to never fight her flow. And no direction but to trust the final destination. Uh, There's another line in there that says, uh, come the sunrise, we'll descend through Judgment Valley. And I'm like, okay, like this is like hitting really hard. And all of of his dark material things for me. World of the Dead (laughs) stuff. And there's just a lot of, I think there's a lot of symbolism in that song that you can interpret in a thousand different ways that make it relate to his dark materials from uh, the river just being like the river of life. Or I think about like the river of dust that they can see in the sky and the Malefa world near the end of the series. Um, There's so much. It's really, it's a really, really good song and it's very pretty. It reminds me of the prophecy too, in general, around Lyra yeah. and Lyra being the anchor in this world that everything is following. Yes. Like with the no direction but to never fight her flow. Mm-hmm. And especially in this series of his dark materials with kind of Lyra's interesting relationship with the alethiometer, right? It wasn't quite as smooth as it was in series one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No direction but to trust the final destination and then des- destroying destiny final destination i don't know like i've ah there's a lot there's a lot in there it's i didn't even think of that awesome that was very you're good good at this holy shit (laughs) what else you got give me next one bartender throw it at me now if i want to be sad about will and lyra um i saw i saw your regina songs and i had to raise you how uh by regina specter because it's the most it's the most sad I don't know, breakup song, I guess. It's heartbreaking. 
this song like will make me cry if I if I listen to it hard enough. Um, and I haven't even really experienced a, a relationship or a breakup like that, but it's just, I feel it in my bones. Yeah, so some lyrics are, uh, how can I forget your love? How can I never see you again? How can I ever know why some stay, others go when I don't? Oh, I don't want you to go. <laughs> so uh, it's pretty just kind of on the on the nose there but ugh. yeah i don't think we're gonna Absolutely. survive series three i don't know yeah i don't know might not. i don't know man i there are so many regina specter songs that worked here in fact originally i had samson on there i did take it off just because mm. it's close but it's not perfect uh, maybe it'll go back on you don't know it could happen there, there's time between when you're all hearing this and when it happens you never know but I did load a bunch of Regina on there. Uh, we need to balance it, you know. We need another happy Regina song to balance out your sad, I think. Because I put one sad, one happy in this final mix. The sad one I put is Eat. It reminds me of Lyra losing both Will and the ability to read the alethiometer. You know, all the fun stuff, mm. you know. Oh, great. Yeah, happy stuff. And of course, the lyrics that resonate the most are it's like forgetting the words to your favorite song. You can't believe it. You were always singing along. It was so easy and the words so sweet. You can't remember. You try to move your feet. It was so easy and the words so sweet. You can't remember. You try to feel the beat. It reminds me just of, you know, the negative capability that she has to enter into, right? That third rung just to enter into. But I did balance it with us, okay? I would never make that connection, and I'm so glad I'm talking to you right now, because you just made me love Regina Spector even more than I could have. I know, I'm like, what do we need, Fidelity? Should we just put Fidelity on here? Because that could make us happier about all um, of this. I don't know. If I... Folding chair is not related, but it's just happy, so you could throw that up there. Sure ain't folding bench. Ooh. <laughs> 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 We haven't had enough bench talk, you know? I feel like they were just throwing that bench at us through the whole series. They oh, my were. God. They said, it, they said it like three different benches in three different episodes. And, and I was just kind of like, hey, talk about some foreshadowing. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm assuming that we saw the bench, right, in episode, uh, what was that, episode two? Yeah. The cave episode? But uh, just the fact that, like, okay. Uh, every time they have an emotional connection, they're sitting at a bench, which is what I love about it thematically. They have, of course, the bench in the botanical garden. They have the bench uh, just outside the window uh, where she talks about losing the alethiometer. And then they have the bench uh, in Chittagaze where they sat yeah. right after uh, the whole deal with Angelica and seeing Tulio where Will is all, you know, emotionally a mess. So it's just like, it makes perfect sense that these two are going to find a bench that they have in common in their, in their own worlds uh, to spend time with each other, even though they can't spend time with each other. So. Oh, the bench is foreshadowing. Oh, it is. We're forebenching. So We're forebenching. Yeah, it's pretty. Benches have four legs. Well, not all of them. <sighs> not all benches are created equal, Eliana. It's true. Yeah. Oh, there's some there's some legs under those benches uh, for <laughs> foreshadowing. Uh, you know, there's another song that you pointed out, Holly. I think it's oh, from yes. Irma Thomas. 
Yes. Um, anyone who knows what love is would understand. If you watch Black Mirror, it shows up at least once a season. But yeah, it, it just came on uh, when I was in the car the other day, not long after watching the last episode. And I was like thinking about it as the monkey kind of singing it to Mrs. Coulter, and it, which is a dark, huh. kind of dark. So sorry, but but that's I don't know. That song is iconic. And it just was like this is this weirdly works. For this, I'm going to put it in the podcast, I guess. Interesting. All of the suffering, and he still loves her. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well. It's an interesting concept of the monkey having a song to Mrs. Coulter. How else is he going to communicate with her? (laughs) That's true. I'm telling you, we need a musical episode of His Dark Materials. It's got to (laughs) happen. Well, there are two songs I really want to hear from Matt on. And one of those songs is Chirigatse by the Portico Quartet. The other one, well, could be a couple of songs from Jacob Collier. So, Chitigatse, I don't know how findable that particular cut is. You can find it on YouTube. And, Chloe, maybe you'll want to put that link in if you didn't find it for the Spotify list. But uh, it's basically the, the Portico Quartet, and it's a jazz instrumental. The title is, of course, will instantly remind you of his dark materials, But even the timbres that are used in this particular piece do, the instruments that are used, they they do give you kind of almost that tropical or Mediterranean kind of sound, uh, which is very easily linked to the television series, if not the books, at least. And the Jacob stuff, Jacob is an amazing young musician. He's just absolutely much like a, a, of Lauren Balfe or whatever, that there's no instrument that he can't play that, uh, the, and play most of them world-class. Lyrically, when he writes stuff, it's pretty general in a lot of ways, so you can interpret them in a lot of ways. But there's one particular song that he did on his first Jesse album that really got me, and that was uh, Once You. It, it has just a few lines lyrically that always make me think of Will and Lyra at, at the end of, of the Amber Spyglass. And those lyrics are, time passes us by, seems like our day is gone, but I know in my heart I'll always care for you and you'll care for me. And I'll always remember the world we shared. The road may be long, 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 but someday I'll hold you close once more. And uh, it's just that kind of longing that... Uh, and the w- the way this song is orchestrated very dramatically <laughs> uh, by the Metropole Orchestra is, is uh, wonderfully done. And uh, that always makes me think of his dark materials now when I hear it. Sad about Lil and Lyra again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're, check those out. We're really good at that. <laughs> if, you want a, if you want a little bit lighter, maybe, Chloe, you can put this in your notes as well. If you want to just consider his dark materials from Philip Pullman's perspective, the BBC uh, had a program where they uh, had him on and had him select a whole bunch of tunes. And I mean, it's got everything from, I don't know, James Brown through Elvis, through all of these different songs. But if you think about that, they're Phil's favorites. That's a double F. You know, he does have his double F. It's not, double it's, not, F. it's not a double F. Phil's favorite. No, oh, wait. I got that wrong. Oh, Darn. It's P-H. Anyway, uh, like but, that. It's a double P, P Matt. It's a P-H-A-V-O-R-I-T-E. phonetic fail. P-H-A-V-O-R-I-T-E. <laughs> favorite with a P-H. 
<laughs> and an OU <laughs> while we're at it because the British. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, th- th- there's a link to the, the list. If it's uh, uh, bbc.co.uk uh, slash programs, spelled the proper British way, uh, B09BBDLR. Uh, so check that URL out and you'll get all of Phil's favorite songs. He does have his very good friend Kate Bush on there. Uh, he does, yes. yes. Oh. And funnily enough, I had cloud busting on this playlist already before you had sent me this link. So I felt pretty good. I was like, Philip and I are connected. We're very connected. Right on. Yes. And interestingly enough, interestingly enough, when it comes to Kate Bush, you know, she did a song for The Golden Compass, the movie. You may remember it from the end of the film. I don't know how you could forget it. Uh, that's film with a PH, by the way just in case you were worried, Matt. But I don't know how you can forget hmm. it. The song was called Lyra, and Kate Bush sang the ditty. It went like this. Eliana, join with me, you know, when you want. Yes, yes. Lyra, 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 her soul box beside her. Yeah, so... Guide her. So it wasn't, it wasn't probably my favorite song. It's actually grown on me. It went from being ironically good to unironically good. Like there are days where I sing I it to myself. That. I'm at the point, maybe it's quarantine. Maybe that's what has me is the pandemic. But like I'm at the point where it might be unironically decent. Uh, mm, hysterically enough, it used to be called Into the Wild and was a Disney reject song. And it was reworked. And it became this song, Lyra, for her very good friend, Philip Pullman, who has said that she is his very good friend so much, in fact, that if you have heard of the book, sorry, the novella, the story, The Collectors, The Collectors by Philip Pullman is based off of a story that Kate Bush told him and he decided to expand upon. Wow. Yes, he released that little nugget. I uh, I got real lucky recently in the Waterstones event where he discussed Serpentine, and he answered my question. I asked him, he, he very, very just blasé was like, and we're, re- we're going to release The Collectors next year. And I was like, what? But like, there's an audiobook, Bill Nye, yada yada. So I asked a question, like, can you tell us more? And boy, did he. And he told us all about Kate Bush coming to him with a story of two pieces of art that kept accidentally coming into the same collection over years and he turned it into a couple of other pieces of art and if you haven't yet read it i really recommend you do matt looking at you but uh i just thought that was so cool so she ended up reworking one of her songs into lyra for the golden compass and their bodies how cool is that every time every time every time Eliana, are you going to make me sad now? Is it your turn? Dance. Dance for me. This is like a mix of feelings. I don't know if it's sad or not, but the way I imprinted on these songs, and none (laughs) of these are indicative of my musical taste at all. I don't, like, listen to these songs. But they make me think of Will and Lyra, because last year when I finished my reread of His Dark Materials, I was finishing it up. I, I finished The Amber Spyglass, and I was on a plane to London, and we took a red-eye flight, and I had the brilliant plan of, you know, I'm gonna sleep on this flight, wake up two hours, you know, land two hours before my workday, my meetings, in London time, and in British time, and you know what? 
Uh, I didn't sleep at all <laughs> during during that flight. Uh, partially because I was just so devastated again as an adult about the ending for Will and Lyra. And then I was just delirious in the car heading to the office. And also a, one of my coworkers will tell you and... She, interestingly, might actually have access to this episode, but I fell asleep in one of our meetings uh, because I was just so tired, but everyone just felt so bad for me. They were just like, oh, that poor girl. And everyone was just trying not to laugh, apparently. But I apparently also took the best notes in the entire meeting. (laughs) But in the car, yeah. Well, no, I would wake up periodically and I would make eye contact with people and nod. And people were trying not to laugh because they're like, I don't understand. Is wasn't she asleep but i also took the best notes anyway um amazing i am very talented but anyway so on the car ride to the office in the cab the song if you're not the one by daniel bedingfield played and i somehow imprinted on this song being about will and lyra this is not like a great song at all i'm sure you've all heard it Somewhere on some adult contemporary station. <laughs> but I decided in my delirium that this was about Bill and Lyra. Because like, it's all like, you know, if you're not the one, then, like, why can't we be together? But I can't take it. I don't understand. So anyway. Yeah. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Me that well that that's the thing you know if I'm not made for you then why does my heart tell me that I am is there any way that I can stay in, in your, your arms, arms? and they yeah. can't they can't physically they and I was cannot. like this is awful and I'm about to have an emotional breakdown and about to start yeah. crying in this cab next to my other yeah. two coworkers who also didn't sleep on this flight also in the same car ride hello from Adele played you know again adult contemporary hits all playing while i'm delirious in this cab and much of this song is not about will and lyra but hello from the other side is and in those like moments i was very vulnerable and just imprinted onto these two songs very strongly so it's also the adele song oh no Oh no. I don't listen to these songs in my usual life. This is not indicative of my taste in music at all. (sighs) Uh, So. Sends you all Adele's albums next year for Christmas. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I mean, she's like a fantastic vocalist, right? She's got songs that are great to sing to. But I was just like, great. Now this is. This is how I feel about this book now. Mm. <laughs> anyway. I mean, I don't feel like the Daniel Baddingfield song is technically a negative. I think it's a bop. I don't know. <laughs> it's something. It's it's definitely, I guess, catchy. It gets stuck in your head for sure. I mean, I don't know. There are so many stupid Pitchfork articles that just shit on pop music that are just like, sure. it's pop. Like, fundamentally, there's a very basic equation to making good music. And if you have something that is catchy, it's usually catchy for a reason. So, you know what? Go on with your bad self, Daniel Bedingfield. Make us sad. And also, that feels indicative of the time. Like, the kind of time frame that you seem to be speaking of. Like, that is completely indicative of just, like, popular music, too. So I I mean, 2019? 
mean, <laughs> this is summer 2019 and someone was just playing like mind. someone was playing just like old hits on their radio station me who filled this playlist with old hits interesting wow that's good yeah. <laughs> um another old hit Apparently the song was really, really popular in the UK, and I want to put it on here because it was canonically in the show, and I had actually never heard this song before this episode, was Lighthouse Family's Lifted, and I was just like, mm-hmm. I don't, I was like, Lord Boreal, what is happening here? <laughs> Same. Eliana, if I could just tell a story about that song. Yes. Uh, we went over this in our podcast because I broke it down. It was released three different times in the UK, <laughs> and the first time it made the top 70, the second time it made the top 40s in a, a, a lot of places all around the world, not the U.S., I don't think. And then the third time, they just put new artwork on it and released it in 1999. <laughs> but I've got a friend from TV Podcast Industries. That's another great podcast that covers a lot of the same shows that Double P does. Uh, Derek. And he sent me this really wonderful email telling me about how anybody who is middle-aged in the 90s that was having a dinner party, that song was playing or was part of the playlist that was playing as they were entertaining. It was that much of a staple. He, he also said that he hated that song, and so it seemed fitting that Boreal would, uh, of course, try to use that song uh, to put Mrs. Coulter in the mood. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I saw, like, it... It, it's a kind of irritating song. I saw that someone tweeted, I don't know if it was to Lord Valve or just in general, that they were like, damn, Lord Boreal's like really into Lifted. That's a that's a villain song. And Lord Valve like quote tweeted it like, isn't it perfect? <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. It was like, it was, that wasn't verbatim, but it was the same general idea. It feels like like yeah. the Dave Matthews band or something. Like, is it that does, kind of how it is? I thought that's who it was. It was. It's like the Dave Matthews band of the UK. That feels accurate. Excellent, excellent. That's a. I mean, but to be fair, that's not very fair because Dave Matthews Band, like the band, is so talented that like I I can't. It's hard to make fun of Dave Matthews Band because the band must have sore shoulders from all that heavy lifting they're doing. Mm. Speaking of lifted, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hey, that's my Dave Matthews Band. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's just what I saw. It's like the typical bro band, I guess, or like a, maybe a mixture of like Dave Matthews Band with Incubus and like Michael Bublé. Mm. Incubus still, still bops. Yeah, Incubus fucking rages, and I'm not saying maybe Lighthouse fam they rage. You know, like you don't know. There's probably some songs they go ham on. Maybe there is. I've that's never why, seen them live before. Me either. That's I true. don't plan on finding out. <laughs> Songs where you can go ham, and this one uh, was brought to my attention, and and I think I'd heard it before, but didn't, like, it's not something I really think of ever, and uh, our friends Pete and Warren brought it up, of Molly Malone, that they associate Molly Malone with Mary Malone. Yes, the the classic Irish song. Yeah. Excellent. Well, you know, that that just leaves you, Chloe. What are your songs? I've got a lot, you know. <laughs> I uh, I was in a long distance rela- I was I've been in several long distance relationships, actually. Not that I say that, but uh, the last long distance relationship I was in, I would drive for like five to ten hours at a time, depending on where I was 
heading to, how I was going, et cetera, et cetera, route I was taking. And I had so many playlists of music, right? I'm a Spotify girl on a Spotify family. I'm only on this family with people that live in my same house, so don't come for me, Spotify. That's a legal <laughs> disclaimer I'm putting out there. Eliana, don't laugh, they'll know. Uh, <laughs> I have several songs that make me think of a little library. There are some songs on this playlist you all will see that are like some no-brainers, right? Some death cab for cutie. Some I will follow you into the dark. You can't have... A, you can't have a true pairing playlist without having that song on it. B, you can't have a true pairing that is going to dethrone and attack God without putting that song on there, okay? Like, that's that's easy. That's low-hanging fruit, and I'm tempted, and I took it. But a couple songs that really stood out. There are two songs in particular I will tell you about. The rest I am not going to tell you. You have to go click the playlist. You have to look at this track list yourself find some stuff to get sad about or to think about. The first one is Set Fire to the Third Bar by Snow Patrol featuring vocals by Martha Wainwright. It feels like Lyra uh, at the end of The Amber Spyglass as well as, no real spoilers, but post The Amber Spyglass. Some lyrics that I'm fond of that hurt my heart very much and remind me of Will and Lyra are I find the map and draw a straight line over rivers, farms, and state lines. The distance from A to where you'd be. It's only finger lengths that I see. I touch the place where I'd find your face. My fingers in creases of distant dark places. Uh, the chorus of the song is sadder. It's all like I'm miles from where you are. I lay down on the cold ground and hope that something picks me up and lays me down in your warm arms. It's fine. So. God damn it's sad. <laughs> Yeah, it's real sad. It kind of reminds me of, again, no spoilers for the future, but just a Lyra in the future that living her life, going to bars, trying to just, you know, go to school, do her life, whatever. Just real sad. Real, real bummer. This playlist is really uplifting. You know, it's a, it's a good one. It's really, it's a positive playlist. The other song's not happy. It's a double either. S. It's a double S. What? Mm, what? Double S. What does it mean, Matt? A sad set. Oh my fucking God. It's really fun to not be the person that does double S. <laughs> I, I was just trying to copy you. I'm sorry if I'm like no, you did great. In. No, you did great. I was great. just like trying to. I, so I'm good. out here like, is it within my jurisdiction to fire him or do I hire him? I'm just not sure what my actual job yeah. is anymore. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm very fireable. It's all right. <laughs> well, if Chloe fires you, I'll hire you. So you know who knows what'll happen. Cancel out. That's the goal. That's the goal every time. Eliana, you would definitely be on the losing end of that trade. Trust me. I'm going back to the kitchen now. (laughs) And then, and then I have to take over the music coverage, and so the podcast will only be five minutes long. We heard this theme. It was great. Think of how many downloads you have. Was sick. I mean, if something's five minutes, I'd probably download it. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. I wouldn't download a seven and a half hour episode of stuff that I've done. (laughs) I'm glad they will, though. The people are the best. I don't know. Especially when it just makes you sad. Why do you listen to us if we just make you sad? To feel anything? Yeah, that's true. I just want to feel something. Well, enclosing our feelings. (sighs) Uh, speaking of closing feelings, the other song that I want to highlight, do any of you like Stars, the band Stars at all? Yeah. Oh, well, I'm going to hurt you. 
I love stars. Oh. I was a big stars fan as a teenager. Me too. <laughs> so angsty. I was like, I set myself on fire. Listen, I didn't put broken social scene on here. Okay. Dude, and that I was my, I listened to that album every single day. I have day. never felt so old. <laughs> uh, I listened to broken social scene every single like night for like months. Yeah, I listened to broken awesome. social scene in Memphis so hard. Oh god. Well, stars what was dead hearts even on dead hearts was on like i don't remember it was on five ghosts i want to say so there's an album called the five ghosts that was released in 2010 a great year uh and stars released this album and there's a song on it called dead hearts now this is a song that i usually relate to another favorite pairing of mine from doctor who which is amy and rory rip but it works really well for Will and Lyra. So the first verse is, Did you see the closing window? Did you hear the slamming door? They moved forward and my heart died. They moved forward and my heart died. Please tell me what they looked like. Did they seem afraid of you? They were kids that I once knew. They were kids that I once knew. <sighs> yeah, so it's sad. It's a real bummer. So, that is sad. It's kind of just like, what if they just didn't? You know, what if they got to stay together? What if it didn't matter? What if, like, health-wise it worked? I mean, it could happen. You know, maybe they didn't know. Maybe maybe the angels don't know shit. Maybe they don't know shit. We don't know. Oh. I've been through a war. I know things, you know. It's the angels. <sighs> Sigh. Hmm. Yeah. Well... Very positive. Sufficiently sad. Yup. Yep. I, uh, I don't know. I don't have a lot of positivity because it's like we don't have the next book yet in the Companion Sandwich trilogy where I think we're going to get some closure. There's no reason to have anything there. It's not spoilers. I just think it's going to happen. Uh, Lyra needs closure, man. Adults need closure from trauma and stuff. I mean, this kid's a pretty special kid, right? Yeah. I mean, both of them. Yeah. Do both of them need so much help? God. So much trauma. I don't know. I think music is part of that healing for us as people that have to read these books and tear our hearts open and watch this show and tear our hearts back open all over again as we've been doing. I uh I don't know. I wonder what we'll be seeing in the future of the show. What what are your hopes for the soundtrack in series three, Matt and Holly? What do you hope we get as far as moments from the book to sound, uh, etc.? I mentioned it earlier. The hardest, I think, I think the music for leaving Pan on the shore uh, oh, needs yeah. to be needs to be the saddest thing I've ever heard. It has to be. Yeah, that's kind of my moment, and from that from that book, um, it's really the only moment I think about. I'll be very interested to see what kind of approach Mr. Balf takes, if any, regarding the Malefa. Mm. Because you could theoretically just continue on with Mary stuff uh-huh. and make it about that if you want to make that easier. Um, I've never known that man to not take a challenge, though. So I'm sure he's got <laughs> something in mind already. He's such a lover of the books. Uh, but I'll be really interested to see how that works out. Also, New Cardinal Rises for the Magisterium. Mm. 
let's see if we get first of all let's see if we get a father gomez and if we do how prominent that role and theme is and i'm being kind of specific but we talked about the lee and japari rediscovery so uh, that's about all i've got for that i guess right now it's just pure speculation can't wait to see what they come up with kind of makes me wonder that that's a great point regarding the magisterium if there's like going to be a you know what what's the theme going to be like when we see metatron and the authority is it going to be more magisterium-esque are they going to veer more towards the side of the songs they've been using for dust and, and the angels is it going to be something different entirely you know i kind of wonder what mm. what direction if it'll be a blend which will be weird and interesting i don't know if it's Excellent possible question Metatron's theme is just the one-winged angel Sephiroth theme. <laughs> Sephiroth! I hope. Turns out we heard it all along. It's... <laughs> Yo, I bet it will be, though. I'm not even kidding. I bet that will be a very significant part of it, Matt. Oh, my God. It may very well be. It may very well be. Okay. We gotta remember this moment. <laughs> Now I can't wait to find out that we're right. Yeah. yeah for, for Holly can't wait on this moment so that she can hold it over my head and, and say, see, you've always been terrible at theories, man. Oh, my man. God. Always oh, been no. bad. I never say, I never talk to you like that. Yeah, that's oh. mean. What is this? Don't quarrel, you two. What is this? It's three hours, you know. They're starting to get fussy with each other. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's time for our nap. Set them free. I bet we're going to get a song called like closing the windows closing time yeah, i was going there too <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i do I'm know so I bet it's gonna be a song that like kicks in just when the angels are explaining to them no sorry you gotta go close the windows good luck i bet it's gonna be a devastating overture it's gonna have children of the prophecy i bet it's gonna have like some of mary's theme with the bells coming in maybe some of the shaman oh it's gonna be sad it's gonna have lyra's theme over at the end real sad real small some strings lauren come get it this is yours you can have it just you know give me a wink and a nod when you take it you know but there you go closing of the windows Damn. Close all the windows and let no specters in the world. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's bad. Series three, Eliana. Series three. I mean, I, I think I'm going to stick with what I said about Metatron. That's my big yeah. like wonder now. Yeah, or, or what the underworld's going to sound like in general. Ooh, yeah. Mm. Will everything have a certain like minor kind of variant to it? Or... Yeah. Or even diminished. Yeah. I, I would think it, diminished could go even further with that because that's basically just taking a minor and, and making it that much more closed. And the sy symmetry of a diminished chord will always make you uncomfortable because for every diminished chord, there's three possible resolutions. And we as humans just don't deal with that very well. Hmm. Hmm. We like closure, us humans, is what you're saying. Well, we, we just... We prefer to have a, a more, in t terms of music, Western music, not Eastern yes. music, but Western music. We definitely prefer to have uh, a path laid out for us that we can follow. And that's why uh, dominant chords are so troublesome for us uh, in terms of if you just leave them at the end or 
uh, which is great for a cliffhanger or what have you, and why diminished chords are so troublesome for us, and why augmented chords are actually troublesome for us too, because they're also evenly spaced, and that's what makes them seem weird, even though they have kind of a major sound to them. I could see that. I like that idea. I guess we'll have to hold out and find out, which we don't have a release date, obviously. We won't have that for quite some time, but we do know that Series 3 has been confirmed. It is happening. We all kind of knew it, you know, deep down, because Series 2 rocked. Yeah, because Series 2 was kick-ass. How could you not? But also still was kind of scared, right? Like, still was like, what if? (sighs) So I'm really happy. Really happy to hear it. Absolutely. Yay. Well, I think that's... uh, Gotta leave some thoughts. Leave some things to the future. So thank you so much, Matt and Holly, for joining us for this episode and for talking with us for quite a while. Um, Would you mind reminding everyone where they can find The Dust Podcast? Yeah, we're at The Dust Podcast on Twitter. Uh, I always like to let Holly give her own personal Twitter if she wishes. You can find me at Hunt Pants on Twitter. It's weird. You can find me at Musical Concepts. Amazing. This episode for now is out for our patrons of the stranger tier and above on patreon.com slash girls gone canon. However, in the future, you may see this at a public feed near you, possibly even over at the dust podcast feed. Thank you so much for a wonderful year of podcasting, specifically his dark materials podcasting. We'll be returning in 2021 with much more for you, including the end of La Belle Sauvage, as we get toward the middle of it now, will be continuing throughout the year until we complete the novel. And, of course, we are hoping to start the Amber Spyglass in 2021. Stay tuned for more information on that. Fingers crossed we can start it before Series 3. Yeah, fingers crossed. And, you know, when we get that date, that'll help us plan a little more. Yes, next month we will be doing a special episode for our A Song of Ice and Fire patrons, We'll see what's coming out. We have a couple of ideas throwing around, and we may be returning to a faraway place or possibly something old. Stay tuned for more info on that as well. That'll come to you on patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where you can get all of the most recent updates on what we're doing. Yes. Well, you know, we don't really need to remind you all where to find us, because here you are on our Patreon. So thank you everyone for joining us and thank you once more to Matt and Holly of the Dust for joining us day, evening, time. (laughs) May you find your way back soon. Thanks and we'll talk to you soon.